This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. Because he had so much to gain and had such a material motive. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 159. I am your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khalid. And today, we are going to take a little drive-by through a kind of topical event for the early summer of 2023 at least it was something it was something we floated doing before and definitely like intrigued me when you first brought it up like during our gustavus myers series but obviously it was current events that like reminded me of it and got me like reading about the subject and like wanting to get back into it Um, yes yes so i think uh as we record today we're recording at the end of june so it is already somewhat receded from the headlines but uh, earlier this month, God, what was it? Two weeks ago, I don't you even know, remember. Uh, the world was gripped by <laughs> yeah, yeah. submersible tragedy of uh, yeah, the real of, time, uh, but not real time. The phantom rescue attempt of people who were already dead. Uh huh. In yeah, uh, knocking on the hull every thirty minutes. The Titan. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Banging the banging sound. Yes, right, where yeah. uh, five basically billionaires uh, went down. Uh, and to one their... 19-year-old Pakistani and, kid. And, and uh, one scared 19-year-old who didn't want to go, yeah, but it was Father's yeah. Day. Um, all, uh, all went down and, uh, and met their, you know, met their, their icy end um, yeah. right by At the At least wreckage. it wasn't as horrifying as, I think that part of the appeal of the story, like what, you know, gripped people so much was like the horror of like slowly running out of air at the bottom of the ocean but that's not actually what happened and they like hit something and they instantly imploded probably without even knowing what was happening Um, yeah we still don't know what they happened except it now is uh it is uh, pretty much accepted that it imploded and just like crushed them instantly and so they weren't it really would have i think the image of them like sitting at the ocean floor like with the with the wreckage of the titanic in something the size of a minivan yeah like just all cramped together running out of air like slowly losing hope of rescue yeah i mean (laughs) yeah yeah it's pretty very disturbing thing to to imagine and that scenario like fast this is interesting because i feel like what we're going to talk about if partially today with the titanic is what a powerful like idea and like mythos the titanic is uh we were talking yes. before we were going to titanic basically is 
the 9-11 of the early 20th century. And that thing, that scenario, like, never actually happened at all. But that, like, myth, that idea captivated people so much. And a lot of what captivated people with the Titanic is what it symbolizes, like, what it represents. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's why, similarly, there's obviously important differences that I think are illuminating with 9-11. For instance, like, with 9-11 no matter what you believe about like who someone planned 9-11 right yeah. like, you know, it was not right? an accident yeah exactly even though which again this is one of the things i feel like is revealing because like people will almost act like you know if you're suggesting that for instance like the u.s government had a hand in 9-11 then like you are you know you you're insisting that everything has to be planned some things are just accidents it's like well no matter what 9-11 wasn't an accident you know so it's interesting yeah. that you see that like planned versus random discourse come up worth 9-11 but it really does come up with the titanic because there are conspiracy theories on the titanic but usually like it's that actually does make a distinction of like if it was a conspiracy then there was a plan for this ship to sink but the official story is that it was like this really improbable accident you know like i think yeah. that uh we'll talk about like some of the theories about the titanic that have floated out uh floated around like what merits if any they have but Mm -hmm. you know one of them is like oh it was like insurance fraud but the titanic like you know looking into it it actually was like pretty underinsured they didn't really recoup anything on it because it was seen to be so unlikely not only that this particular ship would sink but that like any ship would like hit an iceberg it was like a Mm -hmm. one in a million chance you know it did happen but it was pretty rare um yeah Yeah, yeah, there were uh, ship disasters, but uh, yeah, there's plenty of ship disasters and ships hitting icebergs. But yeah, for this ship to hit an ice, like for a ship to hit an iceberg at all, it's not super common. And also, like for it to just catastrophically sink, it's pretty rare. Um, Very rare. Not something that I mean, something incredibly. uh, Maybe it's similar to nine eleven in that sense, where it was so like beyond people's imagination of yeah. something that could happen that it like blew everybody's mind because I mean, in a way skyscrapers are kind of like, they're kind of like the Titanics of the land in that it's incredibly rare for any of them to like collapse. Right. Like due mm-hmm. to any reason. Right. Um, unless they're intentionally detonated. So it has that kind of rare freak thing. But as you said, I think intentionality is important and, uh, and and yeah, we'll get into the insurance stuff because that that is I think coming hot off the heels of history of the great American fortunes in our J.P. Morgan section when we got to that kind of little point. And I think that book, the volume that Gustavus Myers wrote, was written like right before the Titanic sank, like 1910 or something like that. So he didn't the, he didn't comment on the Titanic itself, but he did talk about J.P. Morgan's shipping lines, like the White Star Line and things like things like that and i I think it was almost like it was too perfect you know when i think we stumbled upon some of these titanic theories that involved jp morgan you know that great villain of the gilded age that it's like i kind of wanted to believe that he had something to do with sinking it especially because as we'll get into he was supposed to be on the titanic he had booked a suite yes and then decided at some point before not to go and i think to yeah. stay in france what i read um, was that it was some kind of fr- there was some kind of french law that was like gonna change the tariffs or something or change like the duties on like art being taken out of the country and mm-hmm. he had to like hoard all of his art in france or something like that uh like at the last minute and that's why well i don't know 
I don't want to. That's one hypothesis. Like rep, yeah, suggest that it was at the last minute because people like you know have said like it was the day before and he suddenly stops like well then when did he plan to sink it? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, again, I also wanted to find some like motive for J.P. Morgan to sink the Titanic, like to see if like it was possible because that's like really popular theory like you see going around now like on TikTok. I was like, yeah. okay, well you know, let's give this its day in court. Uh, and everything but i couldn't really find like all the possible motives like the insurance thing i was like well you know jp morgan he wasn't above like taking a financial loss to crush his enemies uh and things like that but you know i looked into it and like just the reputational damage that this ship sinking did to like the white star line and also like the fact that like you know people say like oh the only millionaires who support the federal reserve were all on board the titanic that day but then i was like okay well is that true about the guys who are usually named uh, and I could not find anything to indicate that they were um, against the Federal Reserve. And in fact, yeah, I think one we're going to get like, into that. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I forget which um, was it Isidore. There were a few very prominent. I mean, I think we mentioned that in our hot gaff episode that there were. Yeah. There was John Jacob Astor. Strauss. The I don't know why he had stores like Isidore Strauss. Yeah. Yeah, Isidore yeah. Strauss. He's the um, one who actually said anything about it, and he was like pro Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. And um, Benjamin Guggenheim. I think Isidore Strauss ran Macy's department store. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think that was him. And uh, obviously John Jacob Astor the Fourth, the descendant of J.J. Astor, that great despoiler of the Native Americans through yeah. like systemically addicting them to whiskey uh, mm-hmm. through the fur trade. And then monopolizing all the fucking real estate in New York, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, yeah, yeah. We'll get into that whole Fed thing because that's <laughs> popular right now. And it's recurred again and again. And I think it'll even bleed into a kind of meta discussion about conspiracy theories today. And yeah. how... Because I've just been getting very triggered lately with some shit that I've seen. And... I'm noticing, you know, just there's the last a certain few days, unscrupulousness with some people where they don't seem to actually care about any, some, a certain thing being true. Um, yeah, know. yeah, which you hate to see it because you know we get shit all the time for being crazy yeah, like, and schizo exactly, and all but, this stuff, and it's like we read entire books, we get very into like the finer points of like details and you know, quote unquote, facts, you know even though uh, you know, we're not like fact checkers or debunkers or whatever. But I think that uh, seeing people play so fast and loose, like I think I just tweeted about it the other day. Like one little example is the constant repeating. I just want to say this on the pod, you know, for anybody that's listening. <laughs> okay, all right. That fucking Hungarian model with the, with the creepy Instagram account that is connected to all kinds of weird, like Pizzagate, Hollywood, Petawood, Satanic, blah, 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 that... I know uh, has been, you know, various blogs and websites and Crazy Days and Nights has done this a lot. I know uh, Opperman has, has said this before, but there's like a picture on her Instagram with like this big old uh, old man with pointy eyebrows. And people have been saying for the last like four or five years that that is Michael Aquino. <laughs> and because the caption says like, Grandpa, yo the best. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, my God, it's Aquino's granddaughter. And they just repeat that again. And I see it on Twitter like every fucking week that Aquino has a granddaughter who's in Hollywood who hangs out with like Balenciaga people and Satanists. And like, it's just like, it doesn't even, I get that it looks vaguely like him, but it doesn't even look like him. Like he's white, but, and he has like those eyebrows. But I feel like, again, I mentioned this the first time the eyebrows came up as something to indicate like anything about someone. Like this is, yeah, 
I, like the whole like thing of like symbols or icons like or you know uh, things like that especially this particular one where it's like it is true i have to say I said it before like when some men get old their eyebrows start to like go and like i think this in this particular case i think it might be partially the angle of the picture where like this guy's like just got wild eyebrows and like because of the picture angle it looks like you know it's this like sort of flush horn shape that Aquino loved to put his eyebrows into but like I'm sure he waxed them. He definitely years. waxed them to like very fine points, but they still like grew really long from like when he was young. Like yeah. uh he definitely did some styling to them, but uh it, like for instance Dennis Healy, you know, the former I think he was prime minister and uh he was some kind of like big figure in British politics. Um mm-hmm. the, yeah, he was a Labour Party petitioner, sort of chancellor of the Exchequer and Secretary of State for Defense, right? So he's a big Labour Party guy. He had eyebrows and some pictures they like do have that kind of like Satan horn shape, but I don't think that that should be like considered indicative of anything. It, like some people have eyebrows like that, and that guy's other eyebrow wasn't even in that shape. And it, it wasn't. But even other up. than that, he looks nothing like him. And he's bald. First of all, Quino was never bald, even though he yeah. had cancer. I'd never and seen he, a picture or video of him where he's bald. Well, if you go watch his interview from tw- uh, 2015, that picture is from 2017. Uh, I got a little bit annoyed by this, too, to be honest, like especially yeah. when I saw like, you know, people like insisting that like it was like if you go like watch his interview with Sean Stone on, on Buzzsaw in 2015, you can see what mm-hmm. Aquino looked like in 2015. That picture is dated 2017. The idea that Aquino transformed, he does kind of have a comb over. So I, I don't know, like, you know, it seems like he was doing something, but he still had hair. And the idea that yeah. he transformed from what he looks like in 2015 in that interview to the guy uh, in that picture is not like, to me, plausible. I guess he's also wearing yeah. kind of an Aquino-y outfit, like it's red with a black tie. He's wearing so like, like a blood red black tie. I mean, honestly, given the nature <laughs> of the pictures that that girl did post, like I think her account is locked or deleted now, but I remember seeing them years ago, kind of in post-Pizzagate early Q kind of era. And I remember seeing it and like this girl had a lot of followers and was like a, some kind of actress and model in Hungary a completely different country on a completely different continent. So, like, why does Aquino have a fucking granddaughter? Anyways, like, it it, it was kind of creepy. So I wouldn't even rule out that she has a grandpa who's, like, a creepy uh, occultist or something like that. But it's not Aquino. Like, it's just not. And the the fact that And I'm not going to say that he should be assumed to be a creepy occultist because of how he dresses or looks. Like, I, you know, again, like, yeah, people have eyebrows like that. And people wear solid colored shirts with black ties like it's not super uh and we know definitely would uh, also wear that but that's not proof of it that's the kind of thing where it's like all right like i want to give its due to like this kind of like associative like thinking because i think that it is interesting like i think that there can be some like value in it like in general but like i've never really been like big on like the oh that's a triangle so that means like you know this person's wearing a triangle like it's like well triangles are very common shapes like you need something more than that maybe that does indicate something but in and of itself like the the context matters like when you see that frank giustra had a syrian refugee ngo on a greek island called elpida and its logo originally was a triangle very distinctly like spiraling into a smaller triangle which is like verbatim from that like you know, FBI document about pedo symbols and like it looks very it's not just 
a triangle. Like it's a spirally triangle. Yes, I very know. Close I to think that. we've talked and then about Clinton the LP Foundation thing on Epstein. This show before. It, like, I don't like, remember. Like that's something the, to look into a little more. I don't remember I would all say. the background of the LP. Like I think that that could be something that you know meant something. You said there, like, I don't remember the whole background of this, but like, in yeah, in context, maybe in a larger context, like these circumstantial things can uh, coalesce. And then in that case, like maybe this can have a significance, but to like, you know, just. But there's there's a few a, things going on there like that what, would yeah. uh, like it, it compel me to look into it further. Right. It's like Frank Giustra, this like shady Canadian mining kingpin who's like constantly hanging out with Bill Clinton and working with like the Clinton Global or, Initiative and all this stuff, and yeah, like, or at least not be like too bothered that there are people who are like you know like it's not the biggest problem in the world that there are people who are like you know thinking that this symbol is significant even if it's not you know. But in some cases, it's sure. just like it's something that I feel yeah, it's always been like uh, something that bothered me about the PizzaGate thing is like that kind of uh, idea. I mean, I also think that um, it's like the reason why it's worth like talking about or like worth uh you know considering is that there is like something interesting about it. and i think that people who like would say like oh you know this is like ridiculous like these crazy people like think in that way much more than they realize you know it's not just something that like dumb people do like or something like they're like you know it rubes uh who are fools or like don't have critical thinking skills it's like incredibly common and in fact, I think like, you know, if you look at mm. like Mueller, she wrote type of yep, universe or like blue and on stuff like game theory stuff, you'll see the exact same stuff like uh, going on. Um, and like everybody know, that like, was 100 percent convinced that the uh, Purgosian incident of last weekend and I'm still kind of trying to sort it out in my head. But but like the blue and on types were they, they could not get the word Maskarovka out of their mouths fast enough. Like it just kept saying over and over again, like like this is it was either like this is based, like we love Prigozhin, like Russia's over, or then when it like failed, they're like, Oh, Maskarovka, Maskarovka, Maskarovka. <laughs> and it's like yeah, it could be just uh, you know, fancy way for basically saying like a psyop or like a masquerade, mm-hmm. right? It's just like it's yeah. just like desinformatia. And yeah. you know, the, like they jump into they'll jump on like the the most minor things. Like we said recently when Mueller she wrote got uh, kind of, you know, lit up by some account on Twitter for uh, basically, like, lying about her gr- both her grandfather's, like, heroic World War II. Like, she said her father died at, like, Gua- or her grandfather died at Guadalcanal, but he actually, like, survived and got, like, a, I think, a silver star or something like that. Like, he, he was, like, highly decorated and, like, survived. So, like, she lied about that, and then she lied about being, like, a nuclear tech, like, in the Navy, and, like, didn't. But every Blue Non account was just, like, oh, Russian disinfo, Russian disinfo, oh, this is a Russian, like, disinformantia op, like, and, and, and then, like, there's no, I don't know, follow-up on, I mean, that, in a case, they're defending their parasocial friends, so obviously we know that, you know, you just have to hold the line and, uh, like, sort of concede and admit nothing, but... But with like the Aquino thing, like I've seen people that I would definitely not classify as like dumb who kind of even know a lot about like the conspiracy world that like kind of fell for it. And I'm like, whoa, come on, man. And so I wonder like, like, what is that? Like, why, why are certain know. things? And I think that might even be like a weird shit coat. I might have started as like a weird shit coat of something that's just like I, I see that with Epstein stuff every week. Like there's a fake list of people that went to his island that is partially has real names 
that were like in his black book yeah, or flight logs, but then it has a bunch stuff. of other people yeah, 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 that are just like, and Tom Hanks. And it's like, okay, like maybe Tom Hanks is sus, but there's no evidence yet that he like hung out with right. Epstein. And but then people like, just that's run with it. That's another thing where it's like, if you're maliciously lying on purpose and like you refuse to, like, you know, that's not true. Like you made that, you know, like it's, I mean, maybe it's not malicious. Maybe you think it's like a noble or justifiable lie, you know, to <laughs> suggest this, but well, but you I know what? Know. There's no, I don't see anything positive in saying that Lily Rose Depp has been hanging out with this Bianca Hungarian model who is actually, he said, NT. Uh, no, I don't, know, not I, try, I don't. Not either. trying to light him up. I don't but, either see anything. But, but he I, said I'm that he actually said that. Think, or like what he, might motivate them to lie because I don't know. No, I know, I know, otherwise. I know. But yeah. like, uh, but saying he actually said that uh, this Bianca Hungarian girl was the daughter, which is not even what like the misinterpretation of the Instagram post was. She said, "Grandpa, yo, the best," which means that she's the granddaughter. And then he he's sort of, I don't know if he's being lazy. It just transmuted that into like, oh yeah, she was his daughter. And it's like, dude, like Aquino. First of all, just to be clear, Aquino had one son with his first wife, right. Janet Forbes. Let's, and right. then he married Lilith, and then she had kids from a previous marriage, and he never had, like, daughters or granddaughters at all. This is easily, um, if you listen to a podcast that actually knows about Aquino, like ours, um, you would know these things, or, you know, Recluse, and you would know these things about his background, and you wouldn't, like, mistakenly think that... Uh, that he has a granddaughter that for some reason grew up in Hungary and is like ingratiated with all, it's just all right okay so, we're getting mired in our own ice field here we need to like get <laughs> out of this and get back to the actual topic um yes, but yes. And i think we'll come back to like this general theme like later with regard to like particular theories that have circulated about like this titanic especially like mm -hmm. even recently like after this sort of submersible incident there's been like sort of a new uh, surge in popularity of some of these ideas so we'll talk about yeah. like kind of some of the stuff around that but i think what's well you know kind of what you're saying like the the distinction between like a, or this uh whole concept of like oh you know these like people who do this like are a certain way or think a certain way this is like a fallacy of thought and that's like not how like others think or that's not like a proper critical way to reason you know i feel like there's a more nuanced approach to that and i think and something that's relevant to this i feel like a good example that comes to mind because of its relevance i think to this topic is like the idea with regard to 9-11 like of predictive programming you know or that like there were seeds or symbols that were sort of set up to like condition people to believe that the twin t or to to get them ready for the twin towers to fall or like it was some kind of revelation of the method thing like the reason why the twin towers are collapsing in these action movies or why they're being depicted collapsing on album covers or things like that that's so that either like you know the globalists like they need to tell you what they're gonna do or like something like that or like you know it's to make people like to get them ready for it something like that or like make them able to deal with it or, or accept it when it happens uh mm -hmm. and that's like you know one narrative that like exists uh in like sort of conspiracy theoretical discourses uh but you also had like uh that very i think somewhat famous or to me at least uh at least impactful montage in um the adam curtis's hypernormalization uh yeah. which was sort of pinpointing a phenomenon which i think you know but had actually been picked up on by that conspiracy theoretical discourse and something that i definitely noticed you know maybe you noticed as well where he sort of was highlighting all of these movies like and he explicitly stated like these were all made before 2001 you know showing the destruction of new york city or these sort of iconic landmarks and things like that 
And but Mm -hmm. of course, like, I don't think that Adam Curtis was trying to imply that there was predictive programming. He was getting at something Mm -hmm. else. And I feel like there is a needle to be threaded between like these two ideas. They're not really so different. It's the idea of this sort of this like sort of symbolic uh, like metacultural like inevitability. I mean, the term that we've used in the show is dracularity, right? Like the sense of uh, like a almost like ritualistic inevitable planning where an event sort of exceeds the actual event itself. The it feels as if like yeah. there is an invisible hand, yes. whether it's human or something more cosmic, like it guiding feels like it. Only Dracula could have done this because that's the mm-hmm. magnitude of the event, right? Like the must. Yep. The only one who can be responsible is like Count Dracula himself, like uh, this evil satanic like master planner um, mm-hmm. who's immortal mm-hmm. and uh, just like somehow superlatively foreign, but also superlatively familiar and the titanic Mm -hmm. also very much has that quality right down to the point that it was you know predicted by a lot of there were also like a lot of stories and films novels uh and serialized publications that you know are novels that sort of foresaw this disaster happening which is another big element of the titanic lore i was mentioning before we started recording i was reading this book by richard howells called uh the myth of the titanic which Mm -hmm. you know it was a little bit like too like clifford geertzy like uh you know standard like anthropology to me it was a little bit too much like espousing the sort of attitude that we've criticized in the past like for instance he writes let me see if i can find like a good place to start he talks about like the rationalization and the the wish to believe right so he says like uh um this is an act of societal rationalization of our own society's less flattering and more warlike traits it took place because peoples always justify the traits of which they find themselves possessed it is we might say a continuationary society's need to make sense of the world Making sense of the world, adopting Gilovich's comforting beliefs about it, is a function which Cupid believes is performed by stories. Stories, he says, are interpretive resources through which we make sense of what is happening to us. Indeed, every story is actually theological, because every story, just by being a story, constitutes a promise that life can be meaningful. That is a job of stories. They make life make sense. Indeed, Cupid argues that this is a function performed by both stories and religious myths, a process in which barren chaos is made into a friendly, habitable cosmos. The more anomalous uh, the real-life circumstance, the more, as Levi Strauss would surely have agreed, it attracts the creation of myths. In this way, as a quote, once that great primal mythopoeic faculty in us has been activated, uh, I guess maybe mythopoeic, maybe a typo, uh, life becomes bearable. Stories, remember, have the power to order chaos, reconcile conflict, solve problems, compensate for loss and inadequacy, beguile the night and defer death. So long as we keep our stories going, life can continue. Both anthropology and theology, then, have noted the role of culture in this struggle against meaninglessness. So that attitude is kind of like this idea that, okay, the world is the world as it is the world itself is meaningless right this idea that we criticize like many times like fundamentally mm-hmm. random fundamentally meaningless and then we impose narratives upon it in order for it to make sense but i think it's much more complicated when we talk about okay well how exactly does the world present its like what exactly is the world how is that constituted is not like mm-hmm. our narrativization and the constitution of the world sort of implicated with each other in some way like can we really i don't think that this sort of ontological premise of meaninglessness 
can really be verified, right? And so this is kind of the phenomenon of Dracularity or this sort of randomness slash design dialectic, you could call it, or question that we've returned to so many times and that you see coming up so much in discourses around like quote unquote parapolitics or whatever, you know, uh, 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 conspiracy theory or the occult or anything like that. So, you know, this problem of like, is the world meaningless or does it have some order and structure to it? And I think it's not a question where like, you know, one falls on either side of the other. I feel like that tension is unavoidably there almost and i think that like the insistence that it's quote-unquote really one like it's really meaningless and then we impose this rather than saying you know it really has a meticulously a design meaning for instance you know you were talking a little you were referencing back or before we started recording to our discussion of islamic occasionalism in our uh uh, in our, our previous episode um, about UFOs, we we're talking about mm-hmm. messengers of deception and how he brings that up, right? And in when he mentioned that, he was talking about this idea that you know the entire world is like a series of signs, right, that are meticulously designed and planned and determined, right? Mm-hmm. There is uh, like not necessarily it's not necessarily epistemically decidable between those two things, but one is certainly not like more fundamentally true than the other. This kind of goes back to Cope Morhagen in some way. But mm-hmm. I think that the Titanic. Another story is right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's and kind even of... the, the the theory of meaninglessness of reality being meaningless is also a story. Exactly. So like, yes. Stories all yes. the way down. And that self reflexivity is exactly what I feel like is lacking in like this type of approach, right? Like there's a there's this quote that is in the same book, uh, and he doesn't pick up on what was interesting to me about this quote, the author. But I thought that it was interesting. So he says. Uh, You know, I'll read what he says about it to set up the quote, and then I'll read the quote. The finding or the imposition of intelligible patterns among random events is, of course, not limited to quote-unquote primitive or preliterate culture. Marcus Raskin reached much the same conclusion as Turner did of mythical South America in his discussion of conspiracy theories and the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, This is, I guess, Marcus Raskin. To fatalists... The world may be nothing more than a series of random events and accidents, but most people crave a coherent explanation of why the events which shape their destiny occur. Indeed, this is a, psych- is, this is a psychological function of history. Without this grounding, a person feels uneasy and unable to shape at least part of his or her destiny. So I found, again, I don't know what the larger context of this quote or what the nature of, of Raskin's book is, but because um, I didn't check the citation or look at the book, but... Um, uh, I thought that this uh, sentence, this is a psychological function of history, was interesting because mm-hmm. it was saying that this, like, you know, still kind of framing it as an impulse or a craving and not like a response to how the world seems to us, which mm-hmm. is really not like extricable from how the world is insofar as we are the ones talking about it and trying to produce this theory of the world. But, yeah. it, you know, the way these are this impulse or whatever, this craving, this isn't just like a, about con- the conspiracy theory of history. But it is the function of history or a psychological function of history, right, Uh, is to deal with this uneasiness. I don't think that it is necessarily a reaction to uneasiness. I think that it's I think it's in some ways observational. I don't think it's born out of like a a discomfort, like the sort of like preliminary discomfort that people feel. And then they do this out of like, you know, a need to rationalize. I think that it actually is about how the world presents itself to us. And then we are the ones who then make the determination of whether 
we're going to impose meaninglessness and like a, a narrative of meaninglessness or a narrative mm -hmm. of, of design. And I think the Titanic is a really interesting way to get into that because it has so many of these same elements, but it's really about, okay, did it was just like a one in a million chance thing that happened or, you know, does this mean something? And, you know, I think the argument of this book that I do like is the idea that, uh, like this whole narrative of like our hubris was the meaning that it took on, right? That this was Absolutely. the Titanic sinking was punishment for mankind's hubris, you know, uh, in trying <laughs> to conquer nature, like build these, you know, sim similarly with the, the, the World Trade Center, right? It symbolized oh, so yeah, much, yeah. right? It's kind of like, you know, even though it's so interesting how people would say like, oh, you know, this is blowback, you know, Bill Maher famously saying like, we had it coming, right? That's exactly what so people said about the... So they weren't cowards. Yeah, and I, I kind of agree with that. That iceberg was not coward. a coward. No, the iceberg was not a coward. But, like, it's interesting to say, like, okay, well, you know, this whole blowback thing, like, it's fascinating to me that even though they're so different, like, in, like, this actual circumstances, the same idea that, like, it was blowback, like, came yeah. out about the Titanic. Like, this, too, was somehow blowback, even though it wasn't, like, through, like, training the Mujahideen and, and you know, funding Osama bin Laden and uh, promoting, you know... More roundabout late Victorian sense. It was a kind of, yes, you know, spiritual was... blowback for... Exactly, yeah. ...all this, quote-unquote, progress we had made. And, yeah, like, you know, sort of daring nature to strike down this mighty ship that is unsinkable and... Yeah. All this stuff. Yeah. I mean, that definitely was, is the interpretation that dominated. It's very much like this sort of uh, idea that came up. And I think we were talking about it in our in our Ouija episode when we talked about the Fox sisters and she had that lover who was like an Arctic explorer. It's kind of like uh, the ultimate expression of that sort of a man proposes, God disposes thing. Like that, that picture that I love, that painting of the polar bears like tearing at the mast of like the ship wrecked uh, oh, yeah. among the icebergs. <laughs> and that whole romantic like painting genre of like these massive towering icebergs. And then like these tiny little masts of like the ships of explorers, like just like sort of sprinkled like among them. And mm -hmm. uh, it had the same kind of romantic, like tragic feeling to it that it was like, you know, yeah, man proposes god disposes one of the books that predicted this um or one of the the stories that predicted it was uh probably the most famous one was actually called the wreck of the titan or futility um really yeah did you read about this i didn't uh, get to, i didn't get to read about it but i saw that title no. yeah I, thought that, I didn't realize that was written before the titanic no it was written before by uh wow, Morgan 14 Robertson. years earlier yeah 14 yeah, yeah. years prior mm -hmm. 1898 Yes. And it uh, it really gets at this. It's about like a guy. It's like a badass, you know, uh, and there actually is kind of a conspiracy involved. You know, it's sort of like daring do typical kind of adventure or like at least a romance, like exciting novel, you know, and like he actually sees the ship. He's like a deckhand, right? Like an alcoholic, the main character, John Rowland. You know, he's like had a lover and everything, but she like dumped him. So he's like kind of on the outs and he's just like dr dr hard Wait, drinking. Wait, did you say Rowland? Yeah, John Rowland. That's the name of the, the hero. Oh, because I think that comes up later in another novel that predicted the Titanic, where I think the ship that the titanic like oh, ship yeah, is you're called right. the Roland. that is interesting yeah and and Hauptmann's atlantis Haupt yeah Hauptmann's atlantis yes, yeah which yes, I, I read yes. the review of that that's yeah a, okay maybe that, that was a shout out i don't know 
I don't know. I think I don't, I'm not sure if the Atlantis was before or after. I think it was after. But uh, this I is think rolling. It was after. Yeah, this is rolling with a W. But yeah, it is still rolling. But anyway, so he's like a deckhand, and he's like uh, uh, witnesses the boat like smash into another boat and just like tear it apart. And then wow. the like crew tries to like like you know sort of buddy up to him and like bribe him and like get him to like. Uh, you know, not say anything about how the ship just like destroyed another ship by just like tearing right through it. But, you know, he's like a man of honor and he's like, fuck you. Like, no, I'm not going to do it. You know, then there's actually kind of like a, a little bit of a Grateful Dead maneuver where they decide to drug him. Right. Wow. Um, yeah. So their idea is like kind of to discredit him, I guess, by drugging him. Uh, it says like um, opium. Yeah, as a result of his brighter eyes and steadier voice due to the curative sea air, when he turned out for the first dog watch on deck at four o'clock, the captain and Botswin had held an interview in the chart room in which the former said, do not be alarmed. It is not poison. He is halfway into the horrors now, and this will merely bring them on. He will see snakes, ghosts, goblins, shipwrecks, fire, and all sorts of things. It works in two or three hours. Just drop it into his drinking pot while the port forecastle is empty. Damn, was this ergot or something? This I don't like, know. I don't know what. Yeah, maybe it was like ergot. Proto acid. Yeah, How exactly. And it's interesting. You know, they say he will see shipwrecks. It's actually kind of almost like meta literary in a way because it, you know, is like he's gonna see shipwrecks and envision all these things. And then, you know, what happens while he's drunk is that he, you know, the ship actually does hit an iceberg, and he ends up on an iceberg himself. And mm-hmm. his ex-lover's, like, baby child is there with him. And then, like, a polar bear shows up. And he has He's to fight, fight the polar bear. It's very badass. But there's this part of it that <laughs> expresses, like, exactly this idea where he's, like, sort of on this desolate, lonely iceberg, like, freezing with, like, no hope for rescue, really. So, you know, he says, The moon rose over the castellated structure to the left, flooding the icy beach with ash and gray light, sparkling in a thousand points from the cascades, steams, and rippling pools, throwing into blackest shadow the uh, gullies and hollows, and bringing to his mind, in spite of the weird beauty of the scene, a crushing sense of loneliness, of littleness, as though the vast pile of inorganic desolation which held him was of far greater importance than himself and all the hopes, plans, and fears of his lifetime. The child had cried itself to sleep again, and he paced up and down the ice. Up there, he said, moodily looking up at the sky, where a few stars shone faintly in the flood of the moon. Up there, somewhere. They don't know just where, but somewhere up above is the Christian's heaven. Up there is their good God, who placed Mira's child here. Their good God, whom they borrow from the savage, bloodthirsty race that invented him. And down below us, somewhere again, is their hell and their bad God, whom they invented themselves. And they give us our choice, heaven or hell. It is not so. Not so. The great mystery is not solved. The human heart has not helped in this way. No good, merciful God created this world or its conditions. Whatever may be the nature or the causes at work beyond our mental vision, one fact is indisputably proven, that the qualities of mercy, goodness, justice play no part in the governing scheme. And yet they say the core of all religions on earth is belief in this. Is it? Or is it the cowardly human fear of the unknown that impels a savage mother to throw her babe to a crocodile, that impels a civilized man to endow churches, that has kept in existence from the beginning a class of soothsayers, medicine men, priests, and clergymen, all living on hopes and fears excited by themselves? And people pray, millions of them, and claim they are answered. Are they? Was ever supplication sent into that sky by troubled humanity answered or even heard? Who knows? They pray for rain and sunshine, and both come in time. They pray for health and success, and both are but natural in the marching of events. This is not evidence. 
but they say they know by spiritual uplifting that they are heard and comforted and answered at the moment. Is not this a physiological experiment? Would they not feel equally tranquil if they repeated the multiplication table or boxed the compass? Millions believe this, that prayers are answered, and these millions have prayed to different gods. Were they all wrong or all right? Would a tentative prayer be listened to? It being that the Bibles and Qurans and Vedas are misleading and unreliable, may there not be an unseen, unknown being who knows my heart, who is watching me now? If so, this being gave me reason, which doubts him, and on him is the responsibility. And would this being, if he exists, overlook a def defect for which I am not to blame, and listen to a prayer from me, based on the mere chance that I might be mistaken? Can an unbeliever in the full strength of his reasoning powers come to such trouble that he can no longer stand alone, but must cry for help to an imagined power? Can such time come to a sane man? To me, he looked at the dark line of the vacant horizon. It was seven miles away. New York was 900 the moon in the east over 200,000, and the stars above any number of billions. He was alone with a sleeping child, a dead bear, and the unknown. He walked softly to the boat and looked at the little one for a moment. Then, raising his head, he whispered, For you, Mira. Sinking to his knees, the atheist lifted his eyes to the heavens and with his feeble voice and the fervor born of helplessness prayed to the god that he denied. He begged for the life of the waif in his care, for the safety of the mother, so needful to the little one, and for the courage and strength to do his part and bring them together. But beyond the appeal for help in the service of others, not one word or expressed thought of his prayer included himself as a beneficiary. So much for pride. As he rose to his feet, the flying jib of a bark appeared around the corner of ice to the right of the beach, and a moment later the whole moonlit fabric came into view, wafted along by the faint westerly air, not half a mile away. <laughs> so hopefully you can see like the incredible resonances between not only like in terms of like the events of the novel with this sort of you know unsinkable ship getting hitting the iceberg and everything but also like the ideas at play that then mm -hmm. like are uh at play in the discourses around the titanic right this whole idea of like uh design versus randomness that this guy is like wrestling with right on this iceberg and the sort of question of the doubt that is like the the background of certainty where you know he decides to pray and then they're instantly is this sort of ship that appears right and like you know the same question remains unresolved but you know there's also this sense of can this be a coincidence like i guess yes it can but yeah you know. it's like getting picked up in la by melchizedek you know yeah exactly like, it's, it's the exact uh, same thing it's, just, it's a it's a weird synchronicity yes. and and yeah somewhat unresolved somewhat liminal no i mean that's it's yeah. very uh very interesting yeah, he's wrestling with, like, the planning of this event, like, in a unique way. But, yeah, it's a similar sort of, like, thing to what Adam Curtis pointed out in hypernormalization and also, like, what is part of the predictive programming idea. There were multiple works that predicted this, including one by a guy who actually ended up dying on the Titanic, who was pretty famous, uh, William T. Stead. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what he, did he write? He was kind of proto-SJ-pilled. He was uh, all about... Actually, the like official like William T. Stead website is called like attackingthedevil.co.uk um, <laughs> because he oh was God, like... Uh, yeah, he was like a journalist and he was like really devoted to kind of muckraking journalism and like advocacy on behalf of, of the poor in order to like, uh, in his words, like uh, attack the devil like a Good. quote about it um yeah um he said he was always guided by a moral mission this is from wikipedia influenced by his faith and wrote to a friend the position would be a glorious opportunity of attacking the devil uh he said that of his uh work at the newspaper the northern echo a liberal newspaper 
but yeah, he, uh, I mean, he definitely was like a Christian. So he, uh, said some, uh, not things I wouldn't necessarily co-sign about Turks, um, you know, mm -hmm. responding to the Bulgarian <laughs> issue that came up during his lifetime. But other than that, you know, he wrote a lot of things that seemed like they were necessary. Uh, like he had a book called um, Satan's Invisible World Displayed, A Study of Greater New York, which is all about like how incredibly <laughs> corrupt New York was. Apparently, if he hadn't died in the Titanic, like, you know, people said that he would have won like a Nobel Peace Prize. I don't know how true that is, but you know, he was definitely like a towering figure. Why didn't this yeah. guy get any love as like JP Morgan wanted him dead because he was kind of like, yeah, uh, he was working like, on a documentary about child trafficking in Hollywood. Well, <laughs> he actually yeah. already wrote a book about child trafficking. No um, way. One oh of his most God. famous books was about child trafficking. Yes. Wow. See, like this is where like See, people's attention these, should be. QAnon yeah. people need to be less lazy. Like, Come on, yes. get on this. Uh, his book was called like The Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon. Yeah, that's what it's called. The Maiden Tribute oh of Modern God. Babylon. It first was a series of newspaper articles. He attacked Vice with eye-catching subheadings, The Violation of Virgins, The Confessions of a Brothel Keeper, How Girls Were Bought and Ruined. You know, and he, he, argued. he might today catch some uh, swerf accusations. Uh, he was definitely on the modern a, left, but, he was definitely a swerf. But attackingthedevil.co.uk well, does emphasize that you know, he that it was not the prostitute herself that offended Stead's austere morality, since destitute women often had little choice but to turn to prostitution, prostitution yes, or exactly. face life in the dreaded workhouse. His criticism was aimed at a much higher echelon of society. Stylish houses of ill fame, he thundered, could only be supported by men of wealth and respectability. It was their, quote, reckless passion to which the ruin of the poor unfortunate is due. Okay, so he's like, you know, he's he's actually... He's got a solid rad femme line of, you know, not demonizing sex workers, but demonizing the Johns, right? Uh, and yes. the structure and of the whole thing. Yeah, I think he was definitely focused on, like, you know, kind of, like, human trafficking and, like, yeah, forcing people. Like, the kind of stuff that Andrew Tate does, but even worse. <laughs> you know, like, not something that anyone would defend. You know, not, like, your image of, like, a modern, well-off woman who, like, has an OnlyFans or whatever. You know, like, uh, you can take whatever issue you want with that. But this is, like, actually, like, pretty unambiguous. Like, what he was describing yeah. was pretty unambiguous, you know. The, yeah. this, this actually seems like it syncs up pretty much with, like, the stuff that Karl Marx wrote about prostitution, where he emphasized, like, the you know, the economic exploitation aspect of it, you know, yes, from exactly. slightly different valence, but actually they sync up pretty well. Yeah. So, and yeah, he actually had some success with this and like, he definitely like got some uh, reforms enacted that would at least attempt to address this. Yeah. Although like, you know, he also got some pushback, right? Like he and several of his accomplices were later brought to trial as a result of uh, unlawful investigative methods they used. So he like, there was like the Eliza Armstrong case, which was like a big scandal. I see um, here, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He basically procured like a child himself in order to like expose it. Kind of like what those people do. To, like, I think we've talked about them before. Operation Underground Railroad. Yeah, 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 yeah. You I think Jim like, Caviezel and Mel Gibson are about to do like a movie with those guys. I think so. Yeah, that. yes. Interesting. Yeah, he was supported by the Salvation Army and various religious leaders, but there definitely was like a, some controversy about it. You know, but, it, it also yeah. mentions that his growing fascination with spiritualism exposed him to the ridicule of many of his peers, just yes. like uh, Gustavus Myers kind of got went on a little detour into spiritualism in the around the early 1900s. Right. Yes. Yes. He was quite into it. And he actually after his death. I think I don't I forget who it was by. Um, it was called the Blue Island. 
Experiences of a New Arrival Beyond the Veil. Uh, I'm trying to find like who actually published it. It was like, of course, like he's attributed as the author after his death because it was like a channeled work. And mm. there's actually even like if you look at the version that came out in, I think you can find it on attackingthedevil.co.uk. I guess this is an early like 1923 or so version of it. You can see there's even like some spirit photography of his head like appearing. It looks like very photoshoppy, but you know, it's like just like this weird, like, you know, almost like painted on like image of his head. So yeah, I guess it was uh, recorded by Pardo Woodman and Estelle Stead, who maybe is his daughter or his wife. Um, mm, okay. Yeah. Estelle Stead. What was his... Uh, like her relation. Oh, Stead and Spiritualism. Here we go. Um, yeah, the daughter of uh, William Thomas Stead. Yeah, so he, like, apparently, like, communicated this book from Beyond the Grave and where he described what the afterlife was like, where they went to, like, some blue island where, you know, according to his ghost, like, they, you know, he saw his father and everything, and they were all, everyone was uh, self-centered, but, like, not in a bad way. <laughs> they were self-centered because they had to, like, work on themselves on, like, an island that was all blue. Yeah, Letters from Julia was the automatic writing thing. He got into it in the 1890s. I guess he had a spiritualism quarterly called Borderland and was hailed as the St. Paul of spiritualism after he started attending seances. Yeah, his reputation as a clairvoyant seems to have grown after his death due to his two fictional stories, How the Mail Steamer Went Down in Mid-Atlantic, 1886, and From the Old World to the New, 1892, both of which suggest the Titanic disaster in which, years later, he would ultimately perish. Inevitably, Stead's absorption in spiritualism fatally eroded his political reputation, so much so that by the time of his death, he was derided in many circles as a fanatic and a crank. Hmm, Yes. Hmm. Yeah, maybe he was targeted by maybe an epistemic psyop to get him like deep into <laughs> spiritualism and then when that didn't work um <laughs> he had to get titanic but the brothel actu- owners had to get him yeah, yeah off the trail it's well he's actually connected you know but he definitely had his supporters and like you know there were a lot of like i mean maybe his like untimely death helped to like restore his reputation in a way you know he actually has a connection with like one of the most enduring titanic myths that i think i mentioned back in our Gustavus Myers episode when we when we talked about it but it is the idea that there was a cursed mummy in the holes of the Titanic oh yeah yeah talk about the cursed mummy I I didn't get to look at that yet so well according to like the hold registry and everything there was no cursed mummy of course these things can be fabricated but (laughs) what people think happened was that it was based on like a story that was told by a survivor for first of all it took me so long to find this because i read that like oh what happened was wt stead told a story to frederick kimber steward on the titanic and steward survived and then or sorry a seward i think yeah Mm -hmm. frederick kimber Seward. seward seward survived um and then he told a newspaper he told the new york world that william t stead told him a spooky story about a mummy because he had actually written a spooky story about a mummy previously. So I could not find that article in the New York even world. It took me so long to like try to dig around. I finally found this is like, you know, as far as I could tell, like groundbreaking Titanic research because (laughs) none of the Titanic scholars like reported this right. And I looked in the date of the New York evening world that was given. It was not there, but I did find it in the, uh, the sun, I think, or the tribune. Let me make sure I get it right. Yeah. The sun on Saturday, April 20th, 1912, Mm -hmm. there is an article, which, and part of the reason why this is so hard to find is because it gets the name of Seward wrong. Um, cause it calls him Stuart. 
So I don't know if that was like sort of to hide the fact that the story was made up because the sun definitely seems like it's a bit more tabloidy than the world. But anyway, so the article goes, no one tells of W.T. Stead's death. Of the death of the distinguished journalist and publicist, William T. Stead, there is practically no chronicler among the survivors whose stories have been told. According to one passenger, Mr. Stead, believing that there was not the slightest danger of the Titanic floundering, returned to his stateroom and probably perished there. Frederick K. Stewart, who sat next to Mr. Stead at a table, said that the latter had been telling him of a mummy in the British Museum, which had amazing adventures, and had said that any person who wrote its story would end in a great calamity. While he knew the story, Mr. Stead said, he would never write it, but he told some of it to Mr. Stewart before the disaster, which cost the narrator his life. Wow. So, you know, still kind of a cursed story. Um, kind of a cursed story. Yeah, yeah, he like spoke the story of the mummy in the British Museum. But there is uh, an allegedly unlucky mummy in the British Museum, uh, which, hmm. yeah, I believe that uh, he would described in his like in his stories I think that they were about that mummy. It's a uh, number EA22542. Yeah, uh, the unlucky mummy. She was a painted woman mummy board of uh, sorry, a patent painted wooden mummy board of an unidentified woman <laughs> that was acquired around uh, 1889. So like that mm. was kind of around the same time as this. And uh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So he had written a story about this mummy, and maybe he retold that story, and then that's being connected here. But I don't even know if that's true because they got the survivor's name wrong. So maybe they were like you know kind of fudging it to just you know fabricate a story hedge, based on hedge their bets this is the height of know. yellow journalism it was definitely yeah. the height of yellow journalism so yeah get to you straight no frills what i think might pay the bills spit on the cam like machiavelli came home in the 2011 pasadena john calling me really ain't nowhere none of this shit was headed i ain't even know Intellect not gonna protect me. Bro just crashed, fucked up his dodge. Now he's shopping for another Hemi. Did the dash, got out of dodge. Crashed out grandmama's car. They got tipped off by civilians. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Think I already feel it. Sweatshirt, cause you know I revenge. Best, sir. Cold dish. Pressure cooking roast. No assist, I'm out here on a mission. Triple doubling off for the strips. Get ghosts like I need a killer. Get ghosts like an apparition. Hometown, homie down like a rock. So you know how I gotta skip it. Skip it. Skip it. So you know just how we live. Took it slow, saw what it could give me. Hit the road, go a mile a minute. Mask on like a super villain. Daniel, who you in the den with? Lying. Wasn't lying when I told dogs on the floor now, cause I skinned them. On the 10 East, homebound, I just broke down with the chemist. Midtown niggas pimping. Iceberg, Mac, kind of slim. What they couldn't see, sinking ships. Capsize me, use a flip. We know you. Send a postcard from the depth. Bleed the vein till nothing left. You look drained, you should get some rest. Go get some rest. You look drained, you should get some rest. That's not the only alleged potentially cursed document that or a cursed artifact that was on the titanic right because you found another one that i had never heard of before but it is I, I think it's worth mentioning and that's the uh this bejeweled like leather bound bejeweled version of the rubaiyat of omar yes. Khayyam, right 
Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, this is that kind was of like the example where everyone talks about the mummy. No one talks about the Rubaiyat that was there. This was on. This was yeah. on the Titanic. It has been lost in the Titanic. Like it's maybe de- I don't know if it would disintegrate or whatever, or if it was destroyed when it sank. But like potentially, it's still down there in the Titanic somewhere. Yeah. Uh, this this. Uh, I mean, the impression I get from reading about it is that it was very valuable and kind of prized and like special. And it, but it only went for auction in London for the, it was like 400 something pounds. It was the equivalent of like 2000 something dollars today, which is like expensive for a book, but not like, oh my God, like I feel like other first edition books, you know, go for way, way more than that. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure what's going on there, but uh, either way, it was kind of this rare version that was uh, bound by, uh, what was the name of Well, money went a lot, you know, it was a lot more back then. like pounds were worth a lot more back then it's crazy reading this stuff that's an op like, isn't it um think about it right isn't that an op like like it like it's more than just quote-unquote inflation if like this very valuable thing full of jewels auctioned to like if it was if it got enough like attention to get like press coverage and all this like pr around it the fact that it would sell for the equi- the actual equivalent of $2,200 today just doesn't add up. It's like, come on. It would be like, you know, maybe at $200,000, it'd be newsworthy, but probably more like, you know, 2 million or something. Yeah. But there was also like, I remember reading that there was like some, it was weird where they couldn't seem to sell it. Right. Like it was weird how little interest they had. I don't know what it, but like, that's kind of what they said, right. That Hmm. there was some difficulty in, you know, getting it sold the the original the original time they sold it. In fact, like part of the reason why I think it was when it first Titanic, came out, it was not you, nobody bought it when it first came. Yeah, the, the, Fit, the Fitzgerald uh, translation, right? That was the guy. Oh who, yeah, that was also unpopular at first, but then eventually that became popular. And I assume that it is the Fitzgerald translation that's in. I couldn't find like an actual page picture of like what the pages look like, but I assume mm-hmm. it's the English and not like the original. You know, poems yeah. attributed to Omar Khayyam. Should be said uh, totally. they're probably not actually by him. Uh, another. You know, uh, one of those things. I got the sense that there's a lot of like uh, Sufi fog around, like much as we've discussed before with other people like Rumi and stuff like that, that like the classic Victorian era English translation of this was is later kind of challenged. I guess Edward Fitzgerald really leaned into the kind of like flying spaghetti monster interpretation of uh, these these quatrains and, you know, sort of like leaned into translating them as this guy kind of calling out like the Sufi orders and like traditional religions and, and actually dealing with this kind of uh, tension between like belief and non-belief. Right. I mean, that, that was kind of an impression I got. I know this is very like esoteric. Yeah. There's a bunch of different translations now, but it seemed like that's kind of like what, uh, I don't know. That's kind of the bread and butter of like why this was so popular during the Victorian era, because eventually it yeah. did become a huge kind of phenomenon, and like right. American and European people like loved quoting it, the Fitzgerald yeah, yeah, yeah. translation, and it became this very like pop culturey kind of uh, yeah. There were know, all these Eastern like secret societies test. of Omar yeah, yeah. and things, you know, like where we meet and we drink wine, you know, like not to say that like there weren't actually Sufi orders that did like or, uh, you know, expressions of Sufism or of Islam where, like, wine drinking was, like, sacralized, like, in certain contexts. But, like, generally, 
it's metaphorical. Like, you know, they seem but, to love that. Like they love the interpretation that Omar like Khayyam is endorsing like, Kuf juice. Yeah, like he he's like, like you could be super hedonistic. spiritual, yeah. but like you can uh, have set. I mean, it, it was kind of like a free love drink wine. Like, yes, that's you what, know. if you don't like comprehend like the metaphor of like mystical poetry, like, and I know like there is a tension there, like for sure. Like it's not like, Oh, everyone understood this is entirely metaphorical. And that, like, that's the whole point of it is that there's like a tension between like, transgressiveness and like you know permissibility and like oh quote-unquote orthodox or normative religiosity right but also on the other hand like this type of expression of religiosity was very normative but generally it wasn't like you know this wine is like a metaphor for like tasting religious experience and the union of love is like union with the divine right or with uh muhammad as a vehicle to like the higher union with the divine and like the the uh the quatrains or the uh rubai that are like attributed to uh Chayam, like are probably at least at least mostly and possibly all like all of them which is not actually by the guy omar Chayam. and so like the whole image of him probably like does not really comport with the actual historical person like it's very unlikely that they are actually mostly by him so it's a whole other level of this like i remember people saying like omar Khayyam, the great atheist you know so it's like all right like yeah like based on poems that like this guy probably didn't even write like which aren't atheistic really um but it's a common thing where people are like going through like you know uh like uh, esoteric or uh you know islamic writings to try to find like free thinkers it's like eh it's much more nuanced than that. It really holds back the understanding of these things and the understanding of like Islam in general. But no, definitely as a definitely, human phenomenon. But, but you know, yeah, for people like, who get the Rumi quote um, tattooed on them at Burning Man. Yeah, Fitzgerald like, was like it, the original Coleman Barks for sure. He for sure was the original Coleman Barks. Um, yeah, even Idris Shah kind of earned the Fitzgerald translation yes. of it and was like he had he had to do a limited hangout and be like, mm-hmm. well, it's not all you know, it's it's somewhat <laughs> misinterpreted. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, this is what it was. So, this book was being taken on the Titanic by Francis Singorski, who was one mm-hmm. of the bookbinders who I think had spent two years binding this uh, Rubaiyat book together. Uh, so, I guess here's some stats. I've looked at, I mean, the pictures of it are like quite beautiful. Uh, it yeah. Was, it was breathtakingly magnificent, measuring 16 inches by 13 inches the book was encrusted with 1050 jewels including specially cut rubies topazes and emeralds about 100 square feet of gold leaf and some 5000 pieces of leather were used in its creation Sangorsky agonized over every detail at one point borrowing a human skull so he could accurately depict it in his artistic vision he even bribed a keeper at the london zoo to feed a live rat to a snake so we could capture the grisly image from firsthand experience. The Daily Mirror considered the finished work to be, quote, the most remarkable specimen of binding ever produced. Others simply described it as the, quote, book wonderful. It was given yeah. an enormous price tag. Bookbinder Sangorski and his business partner, George Sutcliffe, were already highly regarded for their elaborate jeweled covers. Real jeweled bindings were like Fabergé eggs, explains Rob Shepard, managing director of... Shepard Sangorsky and Sutcliffe, the 21st century iteration of the company the two men set up in the Edwardian era, they were of a level which would be very hard to replicate today, as there's been a loss of skills over the years. The trade in those days was very skilled. They were extraordinary, talented craftsmen. So Sangorsky was on the Titanic with uh, this book, who I think he was like bringing it 
to the person that had won it at auction in New York, right? Yeah, right. And um, it was bought by Gabriel Weiss, right? Uh, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I think this might have been what I was. I feel like there also was like some trouble getting it, like at first too. But I'm trying to find why I read that. But uh, what uh, they said on RegencyAntiqueBooks.com is that um, it was sold for just uh, 405 pounds, a bit over 2,000 uh, in 1912, to Gabriel Weiss, an American. So, the, like, but it was due the to way they're describing spending it. following England's recent coal strike, apparently. Yeah. Oh, but, that's right. There was a coal strike going on. So, yeah. like, the market and it was, was barely a third up. of the book's worth. So, I guess they wanted 6000 for it and they got huh. still 2, pretty, 000. like, pretty inexpensive. But, uh, yeah. but uh, who knows? Who knows? I mean, yeah, yeah for the amount of work to two years to produce this one thing. I mean, yeah, I guess the same guy who works for the company today says, it was the most extraordinary piece of work. It was very much of its time, the exuberance of Edwardian England just before war broke out. So there we go again with the kind of hubris aspect yeah. of it, right? And then you found this like kind of strangely written but very fascinating and cryptic uh, like page on encyclopediatitanica.org <laughs> that is just like very kind of noited and suggestive about yes. like the actual content of the Rubaiyat. <laughs> And yeah. how it like is constant. It's sort of. I did not know what was going on with this article because, like, I thought Encyclopedia Titanica was like kind of like the home of like the Titanic nerds. But this guy, I guess he's a Titanic nerd in a way, but he definitely went in and it was yeah, it was quite noited. Yeah, and he even brought up what I, like a sort of a, a association I thought of, which was uh, the wreck of the Edward Fitzgerald, um, the famous song written like many years later, uh, kind of in connection between this uh, book sinking and. The famous Edward Fitzgerald translation, but what? Uh, who who did that song? Um, it's like a I have, do not even know who did the song. Hold on, uh, the wreck of the Edward Fitzgerald song. It's Gordon Lightfoot. It's a oh Gordon Lightfoot, R.I.P. Yeah. He just passed away. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Um, did, does he connect that? Is he just talking about? He doesn't. No, he's not talking there? about the Titanic. He's talking about um the like a ship that I think went down in um Lake the Great Lakes. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I think it's a true story. Does uh, it have anything sure. to do with yeah, the Rubaiyat? Yeah, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. It doesn't, other than it was a ship that sank, and uh, Edward Fitzgerald translated the Rubaiyat. So it's like one of those like weird triangular like huh. coincidences. So there's a lot of know, stuff like came that. a famous name of a famous wrecked ship. You know, Edward Fitzgerald translated this book that <laughs> cursed or went down with this wrecked ship. But yeah, this this guy brings it up in the uh, in the article. Yeah, but it just yeah, like, yeah. fan mention. Um, maybe we'll, yeah, maybe we'll circle back in a second and talk about how like the Omar Khayyam and all that stuff is actually much more like influential in say like the American counterculture and like New Age stuff than I had sort of thought. Um, yeah, it, I guess maybe I just hadn't noticed the the name before. But um, let me see at this this article on Encyclopedia Titanica, which is which quotes a lot. It just sort of cryptically inserts like uh, like a couple quatrains from the Rubaiyat, like, as it's discussing other things in, like, this mysterious way. Like, the chance is one of the great themes themes of the Rubaiyat, which may reflect its author's obsession with his obstructed understanding of the universe. Omar Khayyam died in 1123 by our calendar, and with him went a gifted philosopher, mathematician, celestial observer, scholar, and poet. Mm -mm -mm. Yeah, so the idea that, like, that's part of the like appeal of attributing these poems to him because he was such like a mathematical type of guy 
the idea that he wrote these like ecstatic mystical poems like increases that kind of tension that we were talking about right like the idea wasn't he not even known as a poet during his lifetime but it was discovered like 50 years after he died there are all these poems so there's like an authorship ambiguity there right yeah the um like uh, the earliest allusion to his poetry is from the historian Imadadin Isfahani. Again, this is just from Wikipedia. The younger contemporary of Khayyam, who explicitly identifies him as both a poet and a scientist. The earliest specimens of his Rubaiyat is from Fakhr Adin Razi in his work Al Tabin al Abad Asrar al Maudad fi Quran, around 1160 AD, I guess. He quotes one of his poems. So then Daya quotes two quatrains. Uh, one of which is the same as the one already reported by Razi. An additional quatrain is quoted by the historian Juveni. So those are like the earliest attestations to him. One, I guess, uh, there's a mention of him as a contemporary. Uh, there's a mention of him as a poet by a contemporary, but almost everyone was kind of a poet like at that time. So one mention of someone being a poet, I don't know, like how much uh, stock I put in that. And also, and then the other ones are like much, yeah, much after his his death. So... Okay, yeah. I'm going to read so a little bit the, here. Er, the earliest ones are 30 years after his death, five of the quatrains. Um, okay. Yeah. And then discovered more. Yeah, I just want to read a little bit here uh, to get a sense of what we're dealing with. They write that Kayam uh, was born of humble origins. His surname means tent maker, but he rose to a life of generously subsidized study under the benevolence of his sultan in present-day Iran. Thus he could turn his intellect to treatises on algebra, metaphysics, and the solution of difficulties in Euclidean geometry. But Kayam knew that all science goes for naught. Death is the ultimate occlusion. He wrestles with this inescapability in the Rubaiyat, concentrating on the present rather than hereafter, hedonism instead of learning, the pursuit of happiness in place of knowledge. Is this consummate betrayal by the astronomer-poet, or did he fathom one of the deepest human paradoxes, that if we are remembered at all, it may be for the flotsam and jetsam of our lives? Kayam lives on in the Rubaiyat, but all Kayam's life's work is dust. So with the lives of Titanic's famous passengers, nothing so much became the immortality of their lives as the manner of, them, of their leaving them. And then he quotes from the Rubaiyat, Then said another, surely not in vain, my substance from the common earth was tain, like taken, that hmm. he so subtly wrought me into shape should stamp me back to common earth again. Another said, why ne'er a peevish boy would break the bowl from which he drank in joy? Shall he that made the vessel in pure love and fancy in an after rage destroy? The unbreakable, unsinkable vessel was destroyed, and the great men died in large number. But then there were also simple men, not philosophers or mathematicians, nor railroad tycoons, nor millionaires, who did not die. These were men who embraced the great, a key symbol of the quatrains, the story of the Slade brothers is well known. Humble stokers who failed to answer the march of time, missing embarkation on a ship that was doomed to sink. The Brotherhood had spent too long having their final drink ashore. The pub, rather fittingly, was called, quote, the grapes, and he quotes hmm. again. And as the cock crew, those who stood before the tavern shouted, open then the door. You know how little while we have to stay, and once departed, may return no more. The randomness of death and the impermanence of luxury permeate the quatrains, themes reflected in the tooling of the Titanic Rubaiyat carried out by the firm of Singorsky and Sutcliffe. Their front cover featured a resplendent peacock motif, but the inside back centralized the skull. Those with an eye to symbolism might also note, 
that the firm was located in Southampton Row in London, nothing, as it turned out, was more impermanent than the Titanic version of Fitzgerald's translation, but like the vaunted dead, the name of the book lives on. Phoenix-like, the peacock spreads its lustrous plumage through the years in further irony and emulation of Kayam. Yet there is a missing quatrain from the classic Rubaiyat. It was found in 1934 by a Dr. Mingana, keeper of manuscripts of the John Rylands Library, in what was cataloged Arabic manuscript number 42 among the library's antiquities. This version of the Rubaiyat, written between 1258 and 1282, is substantially older than the document in the Bodleian Library from which Edward Fitzgerald wrote his translation. The missing quatrain begins, Daranda Chutarkib, and predicts that God will find fault with Kayyem's work and destroy it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Shades uh, of Nostradamus, purveyor of quatrains too. And not only was the Rubaiyat destroyed at sea in 1912, but it is remarkable that so too was its very maker, Francis Sangorsky. Sangorsky went... F- oh, actually, interesting. My Yeah. I read this wrong. I thought Sangorsky was on the Titanic and drowned with it, but no. No, he died he afterwards. Went, yeah. He went for a swim on July 1st, 1912 at Selsey, Sussex. He soon got into difficulties and was quickly drowned. It had taken him two years to produce the Titanic Rubaiyat, but the ocean took him in minutes. Quoting again, Indeed, the idols I have loved so long have done my credit in men's eye much wrong, have drowned my honor in a shallow cup and sold my reputation for a song. The Titanic volume had indeed been sold for a song when originally 1,000 pounds, about $5,000, had been sought. Successive reductions had been necessary before New York dealer Gabriel Wells, um, or was it White? I think it was Weiss, right? Uh, yes, Gabriel Weiss. Gabriel Weiss bought it at Sotheby's for a, fa- for a fraction of oh, its well, true worth. Actually, you know what it is? He was what? Gabriel Wells, formerly Weiss, because... He, I guess, you know, changed his name. Anglicized his name? Yeah. Oh, um, okay. Okay, so yeah, sorry. That That's an important distinction and actually makes it a little bit creepier. That I mean, it, I mean, the book sank on the Titanic. That's symbolic enough. But then he drowns yeah. two months, like three months later, mm-hmm. going out for a swim in the middle of the summer. Yeah. In the BBC little. article, they even wrote, you know, uh, a fatality seemed to follow it, right? Uh, this is what I think I mm-hmm. recalled about how it was difficult to uh, sell originally. Like uh, they said, I think it was probably seen, I mean, undoubtedly by some people as tacky. It was very nouveau rich, and the old-fashioned aristocracy were probably quite embarrassed about it, said Benjamin Maggs, a bookseller from the historic London bookshop Maggs Brothers Limited. A contemporary of that opinion was King Edward uh, VII's librarian at Windsor Castle, Sir John uh, Fortescue. He was among the first to be offered a chance to buy the Omar, but declined, later describing it as the most eminent failure, perhaps, that I ever saw, a work he found absolutely inappropriate, ineffective, and insignificant, and to me personally, a positive distress. Oh yeah, my God. and eventually, yeah, they just had to sell it to this guy for like way less than what it was worth. Um, yeah, huh? And, uh, and you know what? That that's not all. Apparent. I mean, there's actually more. There's multiple more incidents of uh, this book having some very bad luck. Um, yeah, they they go on to say that anyone seeking a drowning thread to a scullodorn tale can find further evidence in the death of one Doctor John Potter in 1923. Potter, age 75, was a Persian scholar like Fitzgerald. And like Fitzgerald, he produced a translation of the Rubaiyat. On Monday evening, June 18, 1923, Potter was seen walking in the street of Castletown, Isle of Man, and thereafter vanished. 
No trace was found until his body was washed up at Auchincairn, a little village in Kirkcudbright on the Solway Firth one month later, the Times reported. A wallet on the body identified Potter, quote, but there was nothing to show how Dr. Potter came to be in the water. Yeah, I remember reading this and thinking of the Somerton man. Did you ever hear that story? Oh, yeah, uh, I actually, I linked into that. I looked into that last night because yeah. another fucking Rubak connection to a yes. drowned man. That was He's much later, original, but yeah. This book is um, the original smiley face killer. Yeah, it was much later, but uh, yeah, for those who don't know, yeah, I think that the mystery of who this guy is like still persists, right? We could do um, a whole episode on Somerset Man. That is, it is very bizarre. Yeah. Like, it's um, this, this man washed up, I think it was in the early 1950s or late 40s. He washed up on the shores uh, of a beach in Australia and, or he was like found on the beach and he was dead. And there was like no identifying, he had like a pack of cigarettes and like no identification. He was wearing kind of like American, like an American suit or something. Yeah, and suit, they, yeah. and the only like clue in it was there's a scrap of paper in his pocket that yeah. was torn out of the last page of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Yeah. And, uh, and, and also a phone number of a woman who like lived nearby. Yeah. And written insisted, on it. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, and there's, like, a code, right? There's, like, a Zodiac code on it. Well, it was just a Persian phrase, which uh, was tamam should, or, like, or is finished, right? Uh, That's right. That's right. It's finished. Yeah, there's that, and then there was... finished or over, you know, like, uh done. Yeah. And then Um, there's... That was written on the back of the Rubiat page. Yeah, yeah, and then there was a series of, like, you know, uh, Roman letters, like, English letters, basically, that... They've spent decades trying to crack like some Zodiac shit and they still have not come up with any kind of satisfying interpretation for what it is. They think it's like basically an acronym, like all the letters represent a word, but mm-hmm. they have like no leads. They, there's no DNA testing. Oh, like, yeah. Like they, they still, this guy is just like a mystery man. They're like an MIB that just like washed up on shore <laughs> yeah. with a scrap of the Rubaiyat in his pocket. So yeah. once again, you know, we're getting into like Dracularity territory with this, with this book, right? Yes. Um, also, this author does point out after this story about Dr. Potter, the other translator that uh, drowned in the Isle of Man, they quote again from the Rubaiyat, none answered this, but after silence spake, a vessel of a more ungainly make. Quote, they sneer at me for leaning all awry. What? Did the hand then of the potter shake? No. Wow. Potter. Oh <laughs> no. Uh. It was, uh, yeah. So, I mean, this is, there's a lot swirling around. And then, oh, and the last one, like, they made another version of it, right? The, the Rubaiyat, after this, like, fancy one in the Titanic sank. And it was stored in, like, a secure vault in London to, like, you know, so nothing would ever happen to it. And then the vault was demolished by German bombs during the Blitz in World War II. Right, yeah. It was, like, an identical copy of the same yeah. Rubaiyat, yeah. Um, and it was, like, destroyed, yeah. Um, <sighs> what the fuck? Yeah, it's just yeah. It's very weird. Yeah, it's an interesting uh-huh. article because I like, yeah, how the, you know, I can tell like what these verses like actually like, you know, could be more like reasonably, uh, you know, re- uh, references to. But you know, it's interesting how like he's kind of arranged them in this suggestive way or like drawn connections to the story uh, that, you know, the uh, the events. So, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and I, he also yeah. points out that the the other great symbol of the Rubaiyat is the rose, and like mm-hmm. you know, is it maybe maybe James Cameron knew that when he mm-hmm. named his heroine in the Titanic movie Rose, and actually they say there is even an old rose connection because that was the precise hue of the carpet in the Titanic reading room. Old Rose, who threw her jewels into the ocean. Huh. There were well, 1,050 precious stones in the Rubaiyat that went down. Rubies, garnets, amethysts, topazes, olivines, and turquoises. The 250 amethysts formed the bunches of grapes, and the decorative ground was pure gold. But they were all scattered and strewn, with more than as many lives. Quoting again, The worldly hope men set their hearts upon turns ashes, or it prospers, and anon, like snow upon the desert's dusty face, lighting a little hour or two, is gone. Sinon Maloney, tw- 2004. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, the Dracularity meter is ticking pretty friend, high. A friend of this guy was uh, Harry Elkins Widener, who, you know, we talked about in our Gustavus Myers episode a little bit. Um, the Elkins fortune, right? Yes. Uh, and he, yeah, he was like obviously a big bibliophile library, ended up getting, uh, you know, uh, named after him at Harvard. So, yeah, and it's, uh, according to some, it's likely that this book was actually in the custody of Widener because he, I guess, knew Gabriel Weiss slash Wells. Um, mm. He was said just to have a, been in the smoking lounge at the moment of impact, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. And just to, to tack on to that about the Rubaiyat, I mean, this is, uh, this is one of those, you know, texts that, again, is continue to be popular uh, throughout the 20th century. Parahamsa Yogananda of the Self-Realization Fellowship actually uh, published a, an English translation in 1996, which uh, I believe you can buy on the Self-Realization Fellowship website. There's an interesting guy named Ahmad Saidi uh, in 1991 who produced another, I guess he was the first Iranian-born person to translate it into English. Um mm-hmm. And he came to the U.S. in 1931. But interestingly, he served as the head of the Persian publication desk at the U.S. Office of War Information during World War II, inaugurated the Voice of America in Iran, and prepared an English-Persian military dictionary for the Department of Defense. So his focus was to faithfully convey, with less poetic license, Kayyam's original religious, mystical, and historic Persian themes. So, you know, he's like, they got their, like, their, their spook captain in DOD to like provide an, a, like a tactically accurate yeah. like translation so they could mm-hmm. undermine the mullahs or something like that, maybe. And then also one very weird thing that I stumbled across is that there's an interesting figure that actually adopted the name of Omar Khayyam. Um, oh. And we probably stumbled across this, but I'm talking about Omar Khayyam Ravenhurst, a.k.a. Carrie Thornley oh. of the Discordian Society. Oh, I didn't know that he had done that, actually. that He um, took that name early on in the 60s, you know, huh. in, and actually in Principia Discordia, which came out in 1965, I think on, uh, not on the first page, but Carrie Thornley features his own spin on uh, the quatrain that actually like the Wikipedia article uses as like a template to compare translations. His version is, a jug of wine, a leg of lamb, and thou beside me, whistling in the darkness. It's kind of a very loose translation, I think, of that quatrain. Um, Mm -hmm. And so he was very into that. And of course, you know, Carrie Thornley, God, he's popped up so many times. Uh, He was friends with Lee Harvey Oswald 
in the Marines uh, and then wrote a book about Lee Harvey Oswald, like after he defected to the Soviet Union before, you know, the JFK assassination, he testified to the Warren Commission and then started this like wacky Discordian church and, you know, which has spun off into like a million things today. And, you know, like the church of the subgenius and all that shit. And I think with, it, Carrie Thornley needs to be looked into more because he, <laughs> he was also he was a big debunker in the 60s of mm -hmm. like he wrote another book called Oswald after the assassination that basically totally framed it as like lone gunman, whatever. Then later he was like reminiscing I think about hanging out in New Orleans because he was he wanted to be investigated by Jim Garrison and he got caught up in that kind of JFK investigation stuff and he had been hanging out in New Orleans in like the two years leading up to the assassination when uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was there and he recounted stories about hanging out. It was, this was actually just on his Wikipedia. It wasn't even that much of a deep cut, but allegedly... Yeah, he says that during his two-year sojourn in New Orleans, he had numerous meetings with two mysterious middle-aged men named, quote, Gary Kirstein and Slim Brooks. According to his account, they had detailed discussions on numerous subjects ranging from the mundane to the exotic and bordering sometimes on bizarre. Among these was the subject on how one might assassinate President Kennedy, whose beliefs and policies... The aspiring novelist, Carrie Thornley, deeply disliked at the time. <laughs> Later, the oh, former okay. Marine came to believe that Gary Kirstein... Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is wild. Like, he later came to believe that Gary Kirstein had, in reality, been senior CIA officer and future Watergate burglar E. Howard Hunt and Slim Brooks to have been Jerry Milton Brooks, a member of the 1960s right-wing activist group The Minutemen. Guy Bannister, another Minutemen member in New Orleans, had been accused by Garrison of involvement in the assassination and was allegedly connected to Lee Harvey Oswald through the Fair Play for Cuba committee. Thornley also claimed that, Kier this is interesting, he claimed that Kirsten and Brooks had accurately predicted Richard Nixon's accession to the presidency six years before it happened, as well as anticipating the rise of the 1960s counterculture and the subsequent emergence of Charles Manson and what became his cult following. This led Thornley to believe that the U.S. government had somehow been involved, directly or indirectly, in creating and or supporting these events, personages, and phenomena. <laughs> I mm. sure. So I don't know. I like I well, actually wasn't aware that he went into like anointed phase and thought that like the 60s were uh, an op because literally E. Howard Hunt told him they were. But very strange. But he loved, you know, Omar Khayyam. He he was all about that. He probably loved that, you know, the Fitzgerald edgy atheist interpretation. I'm sure that's of how it. he first encountered it. Yeah. 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 Also, oh, last thing I'll, I'll just say real quick that the, uh, the famed skull and roses poster for a grateful dead show at the Avalon ballroom done by Alton yeah. Kelly and Stanley mouse was adapted from Edmund J. Sullivan's illustrations for the Robeyat of Omar Khayyam. So they uh, were uh, into it as well. Not, not too surprising. Not that surprising. The dead, no, they probably it, loved it. Um, I'm yeah. just thinking about like Ship of Fools and stuff like that. I'll probably put that in the episode. But uh, Ship of Fools has like some ominous lyrics, and a lot of their a lot of Robert Hunter's lyrics have that kind of like like what like mystical kind of vibe. Like he's trying to do a kind of Sufi poetry thing. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like not saying he he does it you know convincingly, but <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's definitely like a thing with 
And I think that the Rubai in particular is probably like the most, well, in Fitzgerald's translation, maybe second now to like Coleman Barks Rumi, but it's never actually like a good translation like that. They do like exist, like, you know, uh, it's never actually a good translation. They're always like in love with Coleman Barks or with like the Fitzgerald Rubaiyat. Coleman Barks kind of is the modern day, as you said, like Edward Fitzgerald. But yeah, I feel like it's so influential um, among like that type of person um countercultural spiritual yeah. seeker type in the yeah, west yeah, yeah it's kind of like i remember uh you had like a version of uh poems by kabir i was just thinking by, about kabir by robert yeah, bly yeah robert bly i wonder like uh i mean i know he was like a big like kind of like men's movement guy um and i wonder like how in fact like i don't know too much about i'm not sure what language were kabir's poems in originally i think they might have been in Good question, yeah, I'm not actually. Because sure, I don't really know like the qualities of that language or poetry and that language, I don't think, unless it is. Uh, no, it's a Persian text with biographical information about him. Okay, they were in vernacular Hindi, which I don't really know, uh-huh. but yeah, I have a feeling that like Robert Bly's translations of them are designed to like be impactful to like, you know, 20th century like American males, which they are. But, oh, they are. Uh, I remember yeah. loving like the yeah. Kabir poem. I remember us reading the Kabir poem. Um, I think we, we were going through Russia. I think we had that book. Yeah. And it was like, whoa. Like, you know, yeah. it, it definitely had that effect. <laughs> you like in your early yeah. 20s of like, damn. But I remember finding a different translation of it like online at some point after that. Yeah. And reading like an older 20th century translation. And it like, was very different like the vibe was Definitely. very different and i was like oh yeah. it just gave me an impression of like oh i think robert bly really took some like creative license some yeah. interpretive license maybe not in a as lot of much these as you see in coleman barks uh who honestly takes probably more liberties even than fitzgerald took but yeah certainly and i mean like you know there is some room there in the translation but um you know it's a it's a important line to like walk you don't want to like sometimes people have like a an axe to grind or an agenda with this stuff, you know, like they, they see some kind of purpose in it more than like, they want to communicate like what it says, you know, um, or represent like the writer. And sometimes that's like less sure. marketable or interesting, but yeah. And I think, yeah. And like, I think Robert uh, Bly is like an Esalen guy too. I'm pretty sure he is like, he's very tied in with the whole like Deepak Chopra, like Esalen new agey kind of gang so I could see see a certain like agenda seeping into his uh translations of Kabir that Mm -hmm. like really want to frame it in a kind of like yeah California new agey kind of way um Mm -hmm. yeah even though I haven't looked at it in years but from what I remember that's exactly yeah many such cases yeah the legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. With a load of iron ore, 26,000 tons more than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty. That good ship and true was a bone to be chewed when the gales of November came early. The ship was the pride of the American side, coming back from some mill in Wisconsin. As the big freighters go, it was bigger than most, 
With a crew and good captain well-seasoned Concluding some terms with a couple of steel firms When they left fully loaded for Cleveland Then later that night when the ship's bell rang Could it be the north wind they'd been feeling?
musty old hall in Detroit They prayed in the Maritime Sailors' Cathedral The church bell chimed till it rang 29 times For each man on the Edmund Fitzgerald The legend lives on from the Chippewa Down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi Superior, they said, never gives up her dead When the gales of November come early You mentioned James Cameron, and I do, I think that there's a lot, I feel like, James Cameron, I've, he knew a lot about uh, the Titanic, I feel like, when writing that movie, so I wouldn't be surprised if he was aware of the Rubaiyat, or actually even made a reference uh, to it. Like, I was reading about, something I definitely want to talk about in this episode is The Californian, which is probably, to me, the sussest single thing about the actual events of the Titanic sinking is the role of the ship, The Californian. That's a good like, point. Like, what was going point. on with that? Well, you know, okay. I don't know but what it was, but... We can... Um, so, okay, yeah. if I can summarize the official kind of story, and I guess this did sort of come out because one of the telegraph operators uh, survived and testified at kind of like the, the Titanic commission that they had. So mm-hmm. we do have like oral histories of people yeah. explaining no, this was, kind of this what happened. This whole thing was known about. Actually, it was a huge scandal, right? Mm-hmm. Like, So, um, yeah, the essence of it is you had these uh, Marconi... You know, uh, telegraph. Uh, it's telegraph, not telegram, right? Um, yeah, I think. But uh, wireless. Yeah, telegraph. Yeah, wireless. This is an interesting. They mostly like, called it wireless. Th- this um, is almost a part of like the the sort of modern era like hubris this is like, aspect. Yeah, of the this whole, is a big uh, aspect of the Titanic that like yeah the redditors of the day like mm-hmm. messed it up and people were like angry <laughs> at them too like because like you know once it finally got out that the ship was sinking. And the California played a role in, like, how long it took for that to be known. But, like, you know, all these people, like, amateur ham radio operators, you know. Uh, in fact, I read that the reason why they're called ham radios is because people were seen as being ham-fisted, like these amateur radio operators. Interesting. You know, they would be, like, saying, like, they would be hearing things, like, crossing things up, saying, like, Titanic safe, everything fine. And be like, no, it's not. It's being taken this way. Like, it's being taken, you know, and, like, it was all, yeah. like, muddled everything up. And that they, like, really it's got still blamed. We're still dealing with Morse code, but this is uh, Marconi. What is the name of uh, Marconi? Giuselmo? He was, like, the electrical engineer who, like, invented the, like, a radio wave based, you know. Yes, system. he did. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so they Marco- were called like Marconi systems or whatever. It was his company that basically was running like it wasn't the uh, the White Star Line that was running like the telegraph office. So you had these two operators that were working there. And I guess they were perennially overworked because the passengers of the Titanic and like people on shore were kind of like breaking the Internet the whole time by just yeah. like constantly. So these guys were responsible for both getting weather updates and information from other nearby ships mm-hmm. and then like all the official kind of navigational stuff and then also relaying every message from all the passengers and like receiving messages from people, you know, on shore, which I guess was just like a torrent of shit uh, basically going on nonstop. And I guess what happened was the operator that ended up surviving was kind of up late at night. And he was like he had like two hours to basically process like every single, you know, telegram that was in his stack or whatever. Yeah, people, and yeah, going to Cape Rice. Yeah. 
Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then the Californian, which the Californian, which is the nearest ship to them, and would have been the only ship that could have rescued them in time, gave them like an emergency, you know, uh, like yeah, telegraph message like, of out. icebergs yeah. ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess I don't know, like I don't know how this worked with the technology back then, but in the little reenactment video I saw, like they could send an emergency message, which would be like very loud and like annoying, like very grating, you know, to, like mm-hmm. get your attention. And I guess they did that to this guy who was like busy working and he was so like swamped or whatever. They got pissed off and he, he like telegraphed back to them like, you bloody idiot, like stop yeah, it. Like, oh, shut I'm up, sending, I'm yeah. working Cape Rice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Although shut up, I heard I'm some different Cape interpretations Rice. of that. Like I heard some people saying like, oh, they would have been offended. You know, they would have been pissed off. But I also heard some people say like, you know, wireless guys understood each other and like they would have known that he you know, was just, like, pissed. He was just, like, stressed out and busy and, like, trying to get his point across quickly. So, yeah, I don't know how pissed off they would have been. It's, like, debated. But um, but what whatever happens, apparently they turn off their telegraph machine for the rest of the night after well, they get this message from him, allegedly. Well, what happened is much more... Yeah, though they did turn the telegraph machine off for the night, but they did eventually, I think, talk to them... A little bit more. And that guy, the guy, the wireless operator on the Titanic who got that message from the Californian, he did die. He didn't live. George Phillips. Oh, The guy really? on the Californian might have described it later on. But what was really sus and what really happened was, or like, what, you know, what... lived, though. The other um, guy lived. Maybe some, yeah, maybe some... Harold Price? Was it Harold Price? Um, Harold Price. Yeah, I don't know exactly. Maybe it was Harold Pryor. He was a steward. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he talked about it or maybe he witnessed it. But beyond that even like that was all like kind of like you know yeah the titanic screwed up in that way i guess like kind of or they didn't take proper heat of the ice perhaps but after that even like weirder stuff happened like there's this book called the other side of night the carpathia the california and the Titanic was lost this is like one sort of side of of the issue like it's very it's like probably apparently to me it's like the biggest debate in like titanic history is like how much did the Californian's captain like fuck up? You know, was mm-hmm. he, did he have a chance to save them? How many people could he have saved? A lot of people say that he could have saved everyone on the Titanic. This guy who wrote this book, um, The Other Side of Night, he uh, suggests they could have only saved probably like a few hundred, although, you know, it would have been significant. But, you know, he does not, like, you know, he does, he does not spare the captain of the ship like anything so this guy stanley lord this is like a british merchant marine vessel by the way the Mm -hmm. californian Uh, yeah let me make sure it was merchant marine i believe so yeah it's a british ley line steamship and the captain was uh stanley lord and it was also oh it was owned by the leyland leyland line also part of jp morgan's international mercantile marine co um so (laughs) but anyway so this is what we had to say so this the guy who was uh commanding this there's a little profile of him there was no doubt that lord was a man who would go far in the shipping world and would likely finish his career commanding one of the great passenger liners without exception lord's employers had nothing but the highest praise for his professional abilities there can be no doubt that lord himself aspired to such heights command of a large transatlantic liner was the goal of every rising officer in the british merchant marine command of one of these ships carried a special prestige the cachet uh which of which was unmatched anywhere else in the civilian world only the peculiar dash that attached to officers of the more fashionable cavalry regiments in some of the 
European armies matched it. In a profession top-heavy with talent, to rise to command a passenger liner on the Liverpool or Southampton New York run was the pinnacle of professional achievement. It was everything Stanley Lord had gone to see at the age of 13 to achieve. Uh, physically and temperamentally, Lord embodied the sharp social discrimination which separated merchant officers from merchant seamen. Nearly six feet in height, tall for those days, with a lean build and erect of somewhat rigid bearing, he was stern-looking with deep creases at the corners of a thin-lipped, firmly-set mouth. His nose was prominent, almost aquiline, while his eyes were narrowed from years of squinting at the glaring sun and driving rain. All in all, he was an imposing figure, a veritable Caesar in a sailor's suit, as one writer described him. So, anyway, he was like a serious guy and also... He was like, you know, real up and comer, like a really, you know, everyone praised his professionalism. Everyone praised his talent. He was like a prodigy of seafaring. So anyway, this is what happened the night of the Titanic uh, sinking. I just happened to save this one little quote um, about earlier on in, in the evening. At 11 p.m., Captain Lord went below to the chart room, intending to pass the night stretched out on the settee there. He, set, he left specific instructions with Groves to be called uh, if anything was sighted, although any disturbance seemed unlikely. Absolute peace and quietness prevailed, Groves later recalled, save for brief snatches of Annie Laurie from an Irish voice which floated from a stoke-hold ventilator. <laughs> I don't know, it's amusing picturing this Irish guy, Annie Laurie. You know, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, that's our ancestors, our yeah. South Siberian ancestors. Um, so at around 1.30, Stone decided it was time that he informed Captain Lord, right? Because what happened was they saw, like, some rockets come up from this That's other right. ship right white rockets distress mm-hmm. rockets white, basically wha- well yeah are were the, is white distress rockets there's a whole well, thing about that i heard people say oh the rockets were not red but they were white and yeah. you know this guy strongly disputes that um and in fact so did like the british board of trade like afterwards and the international rules of the road and everything well, i'll read this part actually so they saw these things and like they were trying to figure out what it was so eventually at 1 30 a.m Stone decides it's time to inform Captain Lord. Calling in the voice tube that connected the bridge to the chart room where Lord was napping on the settee, Stone quickly told Lord that he had watched the stranger to the south fire rockets. Are they company signals? Lord asked. I don't know, sir, but they appear to me to be all white. Well, go on, Morsing. Yes, sir. And when you get an answer, let me know by Gibson. Yes, sir. So began a series of exchanges, actions, and inactions that have no parallel in maritime history. This is what the author says. From this moment on, the words and actions of Captain Stanley Lord have baffled maritime authorities for nearly 100 years. Whoa. The language and terminology the second officer Stone used in his report to Lord were very precise and very clear. The ship to the south was firing, quote-unquote, white rockets. Stone repeated this fact twice. It was a significant detail, for in 1912, the governing convention for the use of signals at sea was Article 31 from the International Rules of the Road, which was accepted in total by the British Board of Trade. The article stated, among other provisions, that rockets or shells, throwing stars of any color or description, fired one at a time at short intervals, were to be regarded as signals of distress. Distress at sea has one meaning, and one meaning only. Somebody somewhere is about to die. Yet somehow, despite Stone's report, from this moment onward, Lord never appeared to consider the idea that the rockets seen by Stone and Gibson were actually a distress signal. In fact, his actions, or more correctly, his inactions, appear as if Lord deliberately refused to entertain the idea. How or why he refused to do so would never be adequately explained, by himself or anyone else, for nearly a century. That it did not immediately occur to him that the rockets might indeed be a distress signal was something inexcusable. Sometimes the most obvious answers to a mystery are the most readily overlooked for just that reason. But the answer to Lord's next question, 
Are they company signals? Should have made clear to him that what Stone and Gibson were seeing was not simply an attempt by the stranger to the South at identifying herself. The regulations of the British Board of Trade issued to the masters of all ships calling at British ports listed registered company signals. These were pyrotechnics that ships sometimes used to identify themselves to other vessels they encountered and made it clear that the complicated arrangements of lights and shapes and colors of those signals were nothing like rockets throwing stars of any color or description. Further, uh, to further remove any possible misunderstanding, the preface to the Board of Trade Regulations publication was clear. Note, if these signals are used in any other place for any other purpose and stated, they may be signals of distress and should be answered according by, accordingly by passing ships and claims uh, sent in for payment of salvage. In other words, when in doubt, take no chances, investigate. Yet when Stone answered, I don't know, sir, but they appear to me to be all white, Lord's response, well, go on Morsing, would damn him for all time. Later, he would maintain that he barely recalled this exchange with Stone, claiming that he had been half asleep throughout and responded to his second officer in monosyllables. Yet the recollections under oath of both Stone and later Gibson was that their captain was alert and lucid each time they spoke to him. For the next hour, until the strange ship to the south had disappeared, Stanley Lord, who as a certified master mariner was fully cognizant of the Board of Trade regulations, would studiously avoid any use of the word distress in his exchanges with Stone and Gibson. Not a minor point, for even mentioning the word would acknowledge that possibility, compelling Lord to take action. Likewise, he would avoid any suggestion that Cyril Evans, the wireless operator, be awakened to see what he might learn, lest Evan receive a Evans receive a message of such an unambiguous nature that it laid a moral and legal obligation on Lord to respond. It was as if by a careful evasion of even the idea that this ship might be in distress, he would never have to confront the responsibility that went with it, or the potential dangers it might entail to him personally. Whatever his specific motives, a dark side of Stanley Lord's character, one that he may have never realized existed, was being awakened in those early morning hours. By the time it reached its full dimensions, it would become a frightening persona indeed. So, you know, later on they got, like, its position and everything. The position for the Titanic given by, once they finally established it was sinking, the position for the Titanic given by Frankfurt and the Virginian were identical, and no sooner had Evan transcribed the Virginian's signal than Chief Officer Stewart had it in his hand, and he and Evans were racing up the stairs to the bridge, shouting to Captain Lord that a ship had gone down. Thrusting the message at Lord, Chief Officer Stewart stood by, anticipating that the captain would order the ship to get underway immediately. Instead, Lord took one look at the position, then shook his head in disbelief. No, no, this can't be right, he said, handing the message slip back to Evans. You must get me a better position than this. There was a significance the to Yeah. There was a significance to Boxall's position that Lord immediately recognized, of which Evans, who knew nothing of navigation, would not have suspected. It's a disturbing possibility, and given Lord's subsequent actions, quite likely. Given that Lord was a skilled, if occasionally sloppy, navigator, and already knew the Californian's actual position during the night, one glance at the figures given by Boxall would have made it clear that the Californian was uncomfortably close to the spot where the Titanic sank uncomfortable, that is, for the captain of a vessel whose officers had seen white rockets fired from a nearby ship during the night and done nothing to investigate them. The implication of the remark, you must get me a better position then, is chilling, for it demonstrates that at this precise moment Lord suddenly became aware of the colossal tragic blunder he had made during the night by not responding to the nearby ship as her rockets went off. He was suddenly hoping that the quote-unquote better position for which he was asking would put the Titanic farther from the Californian, far enough to excuse Lord's inactivity. Um, then they went to go look, and then he later claimed that he didn't see any bodies at all. And uh, this author wrote, It is doubtful that he looked very hard, for the sea was littered with them. And for the next several days, liners would report sighting bodies, some singly, others in groups, in an ever-widening circle around the spot where the Titanic went down. The superficial nature of the Californian search should have come as no surprise to anyone, though. 
Third Officer Groves later maintained the search was broken off by 10.30 a.m., though Captain Lord would maintain that it continued until 11.40. Lord's version was the one that went down in the Californian's log, of course, but then Captain Lord's version of the many things would, fi- of many things would find their way into the Californian's log. Nowhere, for example, did a ship's log mention anything about her officers sighting white rockets in the early hours of the morning on April 15, 1912. If the Californian departed the area earlier than her captain maintained, it was understandable. Few men would ever have as much reason as Stanley Ward to put as much distance as possible between himself and the place where the Titanic sank. Uh, so, yeah, they eventually docked at uh, Boston Harbor. And, um, you know, the only incident that's marked the ship's arrival as unusual was the appearance of a corporate representative from the Leyland line at Dockside. As soon as the gangway was lowered into position, he came aboard and immediately closeted himself with Lord in the captain's cabin. No one would ever know the reason for the company representative's visit, but it was an event that had never taken place before during Lord's tenure as captain of the Californian. That does not mean that the ship's completion of its passage to Boston was without incident. On April 18th, the day before the Californian was to arrive, two extraordinary incidents took place. At separate times during the day, Captain Lord called 2nd Officer Stone and Apprentice Officer Gibson into his quarters, and there demanded that each record a strong, uh, sorry, a sworn written statement describing the events of the morning of April 15th. Both men complied, and when they had finished, uh, handed their statements to Lord, who promptly locked them in the Californian's safe. Evans' testimony closed, you know, uh, the proceedings for that day. This is, like, later on when they're at trial, I guess. Uh, Sorry, uh, like, Mm -hmm. skipping ahead a little bit. But, you know, his story, like, changed dramatically. And this is an interesting part, too. So uh, this is, like, just how his story kind of shifted over time. On April 19th, Lord had told the Boston Traveler that the Californian was 30 miles north of the scene of the frightful disaster. Yet on April 22nd, he told the Boston Post his ship was only 20 miles from the Titanic and later testified to the Senate committee that his ship was 19 miles away from the White Star Liner's position. In that same report, it was that Lord stoutly denied that his ship had sighted rockets or other signals of distress. He told the Boston Globe that the Californian spent three hours steaming around the spot, hoping to be able to pick up something or recover some body. At the end of three hours, our search having been without result, we put on steam and headed for Boston, but had told Senator Smith that his search lasted barely more than two hours. When asked by a number of reporters about the Californian's actual position when she stopped for the night of April 14th, Lord replied that such information was state secrets, prompting the Boston Evening Transit to remark on how different this was from the usual practice where, ordinarily, when a Steve or Richard's part has anything to report, figures giving exact positions reckoned in latitude and longitude have always been obtainable from the ship's officers. So, oh, yeah. And then he eventually, when he was being sort of questioned, he had this strange outburst that he notes. Lord continued to deny that anyone aboard the Californian had seen anything that might have been distress signals or rockets. At one point, however, for no apparent reason, Lord suddenly blurted out, It is all foolishness for anybody to say that I, at the point of a revolver, took any man into his room and made him swear to tell any kind of story. No member of the crew has ever been in this room and none of them uh, come near the place except to clean up. What made the remark so bizarre was that it came out of nowhere. No one, either among Lord's officers or members of the press, had even implied that such an incident or anything remotely resembling it had occurred. For some reason, Lord was finding it necessary to deny any in any part in an incident, which, as far as anyone knew, had never taken place. Uh, this is a little bit like I'm giving a press conference to absolutely deny that I'm a cannibal and like run a satanic cult. Like totally not true. Everyone's like, wait, what? Like you're, um, you're a what? It's like I did not pull out a gun and put it in yeah, his head. It's ridiculous I mean, to say that I took a, a man at revolver point into the room and made him swear to tell a certain story. And they're like, uh, all right. Okay. Um, what he said you did, but. So, yeah, I mean, that was like, if there was anything like really sus about this again, like. 
Um, the theory that this guy eventually comes up with is that this guy was, uh, in his words, just like a sociopath. Yeah. And he that, only yeah. cared about himself. And he just didn't, like, because it was treacherous. You know, they sent, as he said, that emergency message warning about the ice and everything. So he might have been worried about what would happen to his ship. Uh, so maybe he didn't want to go rescue them. But it was still like a massive dereliction of duty. And he mm-hmm. acted crazy afterwards like with the whole remark about it being state secrets like the leyland line representative yeah. coming on like the ship immediately after docking and like locking himself in the captain's room like i mean i could see maybe that's where a little maybe uh, a kind of insurance or like legal liability fuckery could come in because if jp morgan owned that line as well yeah he wouldn't want something like that to come out that where like his other line would be like oh, yeah. assuming he didn't, you know, cause the cause it to sing in the first place, and that he was already going to lose money and have a big, you know, scandal on his hands with the singing of the Titanic, the last thing they needed was his other line getting like blamed for sinking the Titanic. Like, you know, he's got to keep his other brand clean. So yeah. maybe there was a frantic effort to just, you know, or even just like Morgan's men, you know, that were on the ground oh, in Boston. Yeah. That at least definitely did happen. Like, they definitely wanted to do damage control, like, for this guy, for sure. And he ended up, like, not being, like, indicted or, like, charged with anything, even though a lot of people wanted to do so. Like, because there were two, like, inquiries, two inquiries, like, in the U.S. and then in in the U.K. So, Mm. but they both, like, decided that he had been punished enough because, like, everyone hated him and his name was a pariah. Yeah, that's, like, that was, like, the one thing where it's, like, so baffling that... I mean, I guess you could just say, like, this guy was just that evil, but it is, like, pretty sus. But then there still kind of is, like, a motive question, because I haven't really been able to, like, come up with, like, you know, for one, like, how you would even plan to get hit by an iceberg, you know, unless... Or even a motive for him to be, like, I want that fucking Titanic to sink. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Unless he's just, like, such a sicko that... But, like, in... Well, I could see him wanting to preserve himself. Yeah, I could see him out of cowardice, sure. Yeah, out of cowardice. Yeah, but... Yeah, exactly. Like, if if he was, like, you know, standing down, like, letting it happen, you know, like, that could be... But also, like, I don't know why J.P. Morgan would want the Titanic to sink, because, like, he wouldn't actually make money on it, the guys who died in it, unless, you know, maybe there's well, something... Well, that leads us to, to kind of yeah. the, big, the big kahuna these days of Titanic conspiracies, which is that he had to kill his rivals, you know? He right, had to make sure yeah. They all died, and mm-hmm. so that's why... And it would have to be... JP Morgan, because one thing that, you know, uh, the debunkers, who I agree with more than usual on this topic, uh, specifically con- concerning like the, the dominant conspiracy theories, is that J. Bruce Ismay, right? The, the sort of the president of the White Star Line. I think he was the president of the White Star Line. Yes. Who is who, intimately. Like, had been kind of like JP Morgan style, like you know, pushed into selling it, even though, like, you know, the guy who founded the company, like his father or whatever, like, probably wouldn't have approved. You know, he, yeah, he went along with it and joined it up with the conglomerate of the International Mercantile Marine Company. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And so, but he was on the Titanic. And actually, this is another thing. I think we even mentioned this the first time we talked about it. He survived. Yeah. And then, much like Captain Lord, 
was incredibly disgraced for having like yeah. for the sort of role he was said to have played. I mean, really, obviously, the women and children thing led to the question of like, well, how did you get on a lifeboat, J. Bruce Ismay? You know, and I think yeah. even the Titanic movie in the '90s like portrays him as like a cowardly little fuck yeah, who like he's, sneaks he's traditionally on. Traditionally portrayed as like a cowardly like slime ball. Um, this is another thing that is like it, it it almost attains a kind of mythic quality like it's too good it's like this like silk topper asshole who owns the titanic and is sailing on it and is like yeah. it's unsinkable and like blah 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 like when it goes south he's like oh my god like get out of the way like yeah. I, I need to get on a lifeboat you know it's like and it's they too also perfect. say that he wanted to set like a speed record so he was that, like pressing the captain to like I go faster. In, yeah, yeah, I looked into that. That was a dominant like kind of rumor at the time is yeah. that he might have been one of these people that was kind of responsible for doing it, for like going at 21 and a half knots or whatever it was through this known ice field. But like I looked into that more. I mean, there's articles these days like in the BBC of like the descendants of J. Bruce Ismay like trying to like clear their father, their grandfather's yeah. name or whatever. Like he's been slandered, you know, and and all that shit. And I have to say like, you know, I don't have uh, too big of a well of a sympathy for J. Bruce Ismay. But at the same time, it does seem that there isn't a lot of good evidence that he was pressuring Captain Smith to break speed records. Like, a few websites kind of pointed this out where, like, for one, the Titanic was not built to be a fast ship. It was built to be the most luxurious ship. And there were other competing lines that uh, I think the Germans had, like, the Kaiser Wilhelm ship. And there were a couple other newer ones that were uh, had broken speed records, like, 10, 20 years prior but that that competition is actually kind of dying down a little bit. Like new shipbuilders around this era were not prioritizing like go faster and faster. And also like they had a scheduled arrival time in New York. So like it, it would even be logistically kind of, I think they had a contingency where they might arrive like the night, a night before they were supposed to get in. And in that case, they had protocols where people could either disembark or they could spend the night and like have dinner and hang out on the ship and then disembark the next morning. So like at most they were kind of planning for like maybe getting in like 12 to 16 hours early, but there like that was not something really that uh, Jay Bruce Ismay seemed to have a huge interest in. And there's, I think with the people that testified that were like on the bridge and stuff like that, like the captain really made the decision to keep going and there would be reasons for that it wasn't necessarily like the dumbest thing in the world to keep going because he thought that since they had clear skies that if they just kept going through the area where there might be ice like they could get through it because if fog came down then they would have to totally stop ironically it probably would have saved them but yeah. you know in his mind was good but. yeah in his mind like the, the skies are totally clear even though it was a new moon so it was very dark out and it was calm so that you couldn't see like the waves crashing up against the edge of an iceberg which is a normal way to spot it and yeah. uh and, i mean there's so many other things that are just like little tiny things that went wrong like for example i think the the people in the crow's nest did not have their binoculars because there was another officer that was like going to be on the voyage but for some reason he got like fired or dismissed at the last minute like right before they set sail 
And I don't know what if he was like mad or something, but he like left the ship very quickly and he he brought the keys to his locker uh, with him and all the binoculars for the crow's nest were in his locker. So that meant that like the people up there, if they had had binoculars, they probably would have seen the iceberg way earlier and been able to steer out of the way. And and so it's like little things like that just accumulate to be yeah. like like they should have been able to this should, really shouldn't have happened but like every little thing that could have cut in their favor didn't and then it all you know basically culminated in uh crashing into this iceberg not just crashing into it but crashing into it in like the worst way possible like i think many people have said that if if he just rammed it like straight ahead you know directly that mm-hmm. it probably would have you know messed up like the front but it had a reinforced bulkhead, so it would have basically like kind of hobbled the ship, but it wouldn't have sank, yeah. and certainly not in two hours. But then you know they tried to turn, but did you find one source that was talking about? I tried to find more like backup on this to see if this is actually real, but somebody had said that the helmsman like turned his wheel the wrong way initially. When um, he was first given the I, order, I heard because that, the sh- like, ship technology not... had switched. Oh, I didn't hear that, but I had heard that they should have just not moved. And the fact that they well, were yeah, like, we're yeah. going to keep moving, that definitely contributed to their sinking. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if they had stopped, they would have survived. And also, if they had just kept going straight and not tried to avoid the iceberg, they would have plowed yeah. right into it. And like the ship wouldn't have sunk, probably, if that happened. And... I mean, even after it got gashed, it had redundancies built into it that were supposed to prevent it from sinking. Like, it was supposed to be, I think, they had these kind of compartments with these walls, and, like, I think, you know, up to four compartments could totally flood, and the ship wouldn't break, but then five of them flooded. And then that, and there was something about the rivets, like the steel uh, rivets on the hull that unbeknownst to some of the like the, the designers had been replaced with like a new type that wasn't fully steel but had some other metals like mixed into it and basically yeah, like the under for a problem yeah. yeah the rivets under extreme pressure and they didn't figure this out until they went down to like investigate the titanic after they found it in the 80s and uh somebody had come to this conclusion that kind of explains like why it sank the way it did that you know these things under yeah under the extreme pressure because once the the bow started going down it like produced this like tension in the middle and that's why it snapped in half eventually yeah right which is crazy like that's a crazy way for a ship of that size to go down but it does i think like physically speaking it makes a lot more sense to me in like the twin towers Um, (laughs) Um, yeah i mean i did hear there definitely was some speculation about like you know there were coal fires that like apparently would happen like sometimes there were just like coal fires in the burners and they would just Mm -hmm. burn then they like they didn't catch them for like 10 days and that might have like weakened them somehow I did hear that that was like a possibility. Some people um, said that, but then it, yeah. the other people were like, "Not really." No, like yeah. it, it probably it, it actually was quite common, and you know, it was yeah. it was really like the combo of all these things, and then and then even then they could have been rescued by this nearby ship, but then there was like a so- sociopathic <laughs> captain or yeah, something like that. incredibly bizarre behavior um, that has baffled maritime historians for a hundred years. 
but I did, you know, I did, I will say that I did see like, you know, uh, among some of these debunker articles about Titanic conspiracies, you know, uh, again, which I also like agreed with uh, more than, than usual. I did see a lot of people saying that Titanic had never been described as being unsinkable, like until after it sank. Um, mm. And I did, I did find actually an article in the evening world from mm. April 15th while I was looking for the cursed mummy thing, which reads, uh, she cannot sink, says official of White Star Line. Uh, he says, absolutely no fears entertained for the safety of the passengers. P.A.S. Franklin, vice president of the International Mercantile Marine, uh, declared this morning that the Titanic was unsinkable and that notwithstanding the alarming reports of her collision with an iceberg, absolutely no fear was entertained for the safety of the passengers. While we have had no direct wireless communication from the Titanic, said Mr. Franklin, we are satisfied that the vessel is unsinkable. Our only reports thus far are from the Associated Press. The fact that the Titanic has sent us no wireless does not cause alarm. In the first place, her failure to communicate with the line may be due to the atmospheric conditions, and in the second place, she may be too busy communicating with nearby ships. No one need fear the Titanic will go down. Even though all her former compartments and bulkheads were stove in by the iceberg, she would still float indefinitely. She might go down a little at the bow, but she would float. I am free to say that no matter how bad the collision with the iceberg, the Titanic would float. She is an unsinkable ship. From the messages we have received, we estimate the Titanic is 1,000 miles from New York in latitude and 41.66 in longitude. I don't know. This is like a weird symbol or something, whatever. And uh, longitude uh, 80.41 west. That would make her 600 miles southeast of Halifax. And the steamship Virginian out of Halifax should reach Titanic at 10 o'clock this morning. The Olympic should make it to the rescue at 8 o'clock tonight. And the Baltic, which had passed the Titanic, has put about and should join the rescuing fleet at 4 o'clock. We feel certain that all the passengers will be landed safely in Halifax. <laughs> Their relatives and friends need to entertain no fears. From our revised list, we find that there are 325 saloon passengers, uh, 300 second cabin passengers, and 800 steerage passengers. The font on this is a little bit blurry. So There are 15 bulkheads in the Titanic. Two of these are what is known as collision bulkheads, and the other 13 are watertight and of the kind common to modern steamers. One collision bulkhead is in the fore part of the hull, 50 feet from the bow. It is of steel with no inlet to the hold, and it is entered from the main deck with an examination when an examination is necessary. Blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, he goes on about how, like, there's no possible we, we've, way. We've been, giving, could... we've been getting uh, Morse code signals every 30 minutes from the Titanic. Everything's yeah, fine. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Everything totally is fine. Safe. But that, like, attitude extended to the people on the ship too which is like really you know chilling um it's a similar thing of like go back into the twin towers and like i read this uh book by it's a it's called like the rescue of the third class on the titanic like a revisionist history i'm trying to uh bring it up right now so i can figure out who the author was but it's basically about how like you know of course they wanted to save the women and children first and everything but the you know statistical breakdown if you analyze like who survived the titanic you know Most, first class first class passengers class. this is like i almost feel a little bit like kind of the conspiracy theories of like the, he wanted to take down the glorious billionaire like john jacob astor who would have stopped the evil fed when like really <laughs> it was a huge massacre of like you know poor italians like and stuff like that it's like oh, poor, no, and, yeah jacob and like the the, like, the coal stokers who were like sealed off immediately like yes when they, hit they the all died they, they all, all the died. engineer died yeah the crew some of the crew survived because they jumped off the ship before it sank and then they got picked up by the lifeboats because there was also logistical like it, we all know that the, there weren't enough lifeboats but what maybe doesn't get emphasized enough is that they kind of fucked up in the loading them and in fact the 
the little British thing I was watching last night said that actually like Captain Smith's order was not women and children only. It was women and children first. Yeah. But then everyone like it, it went down the game of telephone to like no men can board whatsoever. And of course, like the people closest to the top were the first class people. So they all got on uh, first. But then they weren't loading the boats because they were freaked they out. They weren't doing it the same way on both sides either. Like on one side, oh. they enforced that rule like much more harshly than, or well, you know, much more. Uh, and and also apparently the crew they hadn't had time uh they thought to do like a lifeboat drill so they didn't know how many people could actually fit in the lifeboat so they were super afraid that they were going to capsize from being too heavy but what they didn't know it like wasn't communicated to them that there was a lifeboat drill done when they had stopped in belfast and they found out that they could put like 65 people in every lifeboat so they were loading the lifeboats with like 25 people on them which is yeah. why at the end when like it was, so probably maybe about like 500 people could have been saved more than you know than actually were saved but some of the crew survived because they jumped off with life jackets and because these boats weren't full like some of them got picked up and saved by you know the lifeboats that were afloat but then people like John Jacob Astor the 4th and actually um William Stead apparently they died next to each other like clinging onto a a, that's what that's lifeboat. one of the stories yeah you hear a lot of like that's one of the more reliable ones there's mm. also one that he like went you know he was resigned stoically to death because he was a spiritualist so he knew that like he would live on so he went like to smoke his pipe like calmly in the smoking room uh and that's what's wow. depicted in the movie a night to remember which is like one of the more famous titanic movies and i think it's based oh. on a novel too but i feel like that story might be like apocryphal um but yeah the john jacob astor one that they were together I mean, that almost has like a romantic feel to it too, where it's like, feels like Titanic. Like, like, yeah, but like, oh, the great reformer and like the evil billionaire, like together. Yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) Clinging to a road, and then like, yeah, it does sound exactly. Ismay is like banging on his hand to like push him into the water. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But this uh, this book, um, the Rescue of the Third Class, which is by uh, David uh, Gleicher, is like pretty interesting because it kind of gets at like that the crew more or less like deliberately misled people like okay so uh this is just the stats because it's, it's pretty interesting it's worth noting based upon the surviving officer's testimony we should find no significant interactions of gender or age by class that is to say the effect of gender on an individual's likelihood of survival should not have been significantly different whether he or she was from one class or another a glance at how the, a glance at the lower matrix of table nine reveals that the data does not support such a conclusion. Gender and age were crucial to a passenger's chance of surviving within each class, but class also mattered within each gender and age category. The matrix of class interactions in the gender and age categories in table nine indicates how class, gender, and age were intertwined in ways that could not have been fully contemplated by Captain Smith and the senior officers involved in formulating and carrying out policy. A telling commonality can be seen by looking down the two left-hand columns at the bottom matrix. Whether you were a man or a woman, if you were from the first class, you had a significantly greater likelihood of surviving than a corresponding man or woman from the second or third class. An exception here is second class children, where there is no measurable interaction with the first class. A first class man was roughly 14 times more likely to have survived than a second uh, class man, and around nine times more likely than a third class man. And a woman from the first class was roughly nine times more likely to have survived than a second class woman, and 79 times more likely than a woman from the third class. Wow, this is the intersectional analysis we need. Yes, Um, this is like, yeah, hard intersectionality. So yeah, like gender and age definitely mattered. You know, women and children first, that definitely did have an effect. But what 
you know, they represented it as like, doesn't matter, like, you know, where you're from. It's like just get it, getting people out. And that was emphatically not the case, statistically speaking. Like there is, you know, much higher chance of getting off of your first class. So he also writes, yeah. um, a number of subjective elements at this stage were significant to the survival of an individual third class passenger. Among the most important were an early cognizance of the extreme danger of the situation and understanding that getting to the upper decks where lifeboats were going to be loaded was imperative and a willingness to disregard the stewards and others in authority to get to the upper decks. Each mm. of the three third-class survivors to appear before the American Inquiry, Daniel Buckley, Olas, Appleseth, and Burke Picard, met all these criteria. So their stories are all interesting. Like, so Daniel Buckley said, I heard some terrible noise and I jumped out on the floor. And the first thing I knew, my feet were getting wet. The water was just coming in slightly. I told the other fellows to get up and there was something wrong and the water was coming in. They only laughed at me. One of them says, get back in the bed. You are not in Ireland now. <laughs> <laughs> no. I went to bed at about 10 o'clock. Run, o Patty, run. Uh, yeah, this is the other guy, uh, Abel Seth. I went to bed at about uh, 10 o'clock Sunday night, and I was about 15 minutes to 12 when I woke up, and there was another man in the same room, and he said to me, what is that? I said, I don't know, but we had better get up. So we did get up and put our clothes on, and we too went up in the deck in the forward part of the ship. They wanted us to go down again, and I saw one of the officers, and I said to him, is there any danger? He said, no. I was not satisfied with that. And then this is the, the last guy, the Jewish guy, Burke uh, Picard, a Hebrew Immigrant Society. At the time I took passage on the Titanic, I came from London. I am 32 years old. I am a leather worker, a bag maker. I was born in Russia, in Warsaw. My name was Burke uh, Trembinsky. I, I was for a long time in France, and I assumed a French name. As regards private business, I am Picard. I was one of the third-class passengers in the Titanic. My cabin was number 10 in the steerage at the stern. I first knew of the collision when it happened, about 10 minutes to 12. We had all been asleep, and all of a sudden we perceived a terrible we received a shock. We did not hear such a very terrible shock, but we knew something was wrong. And we jumped out of bed and we dressed ourselves and went out, and we could not get back again. I wanted to go back and get my things, but I could not. The stewards would not allow us to go back. They made us all go forward in the deck. There were no doors locked to prevent us from going back. I did not take much notice of it, and I went to the deck. The other passengers started in arguing. One said that it was dangerous, and the other said it was not. One said white, and the other said black. Instead of arguing with those people, I instantly went to the highest spot. I said to myself that the ship had to sink, I would be one of the last. And that was my mm -hmm. first idea, which was the best. So all those people at the American Inquiry who were interviewed, they have one thing in common, which is that they did not listen to the people in authority. What? Um, they didn't li they didn't trust the trust the experts. They didn't trust the experts. Oh, yeah, he also notes what is interesting that after the collision, Captain Smith m mysteriously restarted the ship's engines within a few minutes. And it was the eventual shutdown of the engines at the end of the first, like, you know, uh, phase of the sinking that caught the attention of the passengers, not the impact of the collision itself. So it seems like, as he writes a little bit later on, um, a question posed in almost all the popular accounts is whether and to what degree third class passengers were prevented by the authorities from reaching yeah, the after boat deck. Sorry, like after is like afterward and oh, okay. a deck when these lifeboats were launched. Uh, that few third-class passengers reach the boats is indisputable. But when it comes to the issue of the authorities' intentions, the evidence generally adduced has been the two confrontation set pieces discussed in Chapter 1, the Buckley and Farrell incidents. The power of the authorities, it is implied, was telling only when it burst through civil discourse, that is, when it was expressed in violence or the immediate threat of violence. Something of an exception to this conventional view have been the cursory suggestions by Brown and Davey that the authorities in the personage of Captain Smith, intentionally misled passengers into thinking the ship was not going to go down before they were rescued. 
That, yeah. that seems to be pretty plain. Yes, they, they didn't want to panic people after all. That's the nice way of looking at yes, it. Yes, and he never gave an abandoned ship order. And there was just a lack of general knowledge about the fact that the ship was going to go down. Uh, and yeah, plenty of people would, would just have that assumption that it was unsinkable. And surely, you know, they'll figure it out. You know, either somebody's going to come rescue us or at least it's not going to sink quickly or something yeah i mean i don't even know like how much i mean it makes sense for the white star line people to say it's unsinkable but i don't even know if the passengers believe that but they certainly would have like or well a lot of them did believe you know the people in authority right and they like restarting the engines after the collision just to be like everyone you know everything's and then it's fine yeah the engine shutting down was actually what alerted everybody and yet Hmm. he restarted them I remember reading something, I'm not sure if this is one of those like debooned things, but that by like starting the engines again, actually I forget if they said that actually like it would have sunk faster if he hadn't done that or if that was some kind of mitigation strategy to like. I don't know. I mean, I know that going forward after they hit the iceberg was bad. So I feel like, you know, could starting the engines have been good? I don't know. Um, yeah, probably. It seems like it wouldn't be. It seems like if you're moving forward, I don't know. Maybe well, you're not taking at least water. this guy did say it was mysterious. So it seems like there's no real good explanation for it, at least based on what he says. But I don't really know because yeah. I'm not like a liner expert. But um, well, it, it kind of syncs up with uh, one of the like the dark imperatives of capital that I'm not sure if the, you know, the crew or the captain would necessarily be like worrying about this. But I was reading a little bit about the insurance thing like afterwards. And I guess the way it mostly broke down um, was that in terms of the life insurance policies of the passengers, you know, some of the wealthy people that died or, you know, at least the men, they had very, very, you know, substantial, generous life insurance policies. So the life insurance policies had to pay out like a ton for them if they died. But then basically like the third class and the, you know, the third class and the crew, people that didn't have life insurance policies kind of got fucked over. And I think they, they settled for some kind of, you know, like class action style amount, I think, with the White Star line. But a lot of them got kind of hosed and it actually increased like the prominence and the, and the popularity of like the life insurance industry because like this is so well known and... You know, there were news stories at the time about, you know, poorer people that had died on it. So from the from the perspective of an insurance company, you definitely want to save as many like wealthy policyholders as possible. So you don't have to pay those out. Right. And in some case, they were able like to do that in terms of the policy itself. I think on like Lloyd's.com, they talk about it and it says that relatively speaking, the Titanic was like underinsured. Yeah, because it was considered like a prestigious insurance, you know, policy to take on, yeah. uh, because it was marketed as unsinkable. So right. I think they only charged like a point zero point seventy zero point seven five percent premium on the Titanic, like before it launched, and then afterwards, I think when the Olympic next sailed, like two years later or something, the insurance for that had doubled to over two percent. So clearly, like, there is a adjustment yeah. after the Titanic sank where they thought, oh, shit, these things can go down. And, like, so they got a little bit, in terms of the insurance payout, like, you found other stuff that basically said uh, that, you know, kind of poured some cold water on this idea that J.P. Morgan 
was in that there was it any to, kind uh, of insurance fraud involved. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there was insurance fuckery because the insurance industry is sus and shitanic, you know, like, right, like definitely. But at the same time, like, was the well, sinking sure of the ship that, intentional like, to get insurance money? No, and no, I don't think I so. I mean, yeah, I don't think they profited on like the insurance. Like maybe they did not pay as much as they had to or pay like a like, you know, as much as they should have to like the survivors and the families of the people who died. But it was reported even at the time that like they took like a big hit. Like again, this is like from the New York Evening World. I think I uh, they talked about how the insurance uh, would be. I'll see if I can find it. But yeah, like there's it was definitely only insured for like half of its value. Yeah, underinsured by two point five million dollars. Yeah, so yeah, it, it cost uh, according to Ismay uh, at the American at the Senate inquiry. Senator Smith said there has been considerable confusion about the cost of the Titanic. I will take the liberty of asking you to state it. Ismay said she cost $7.5 million, sir. And for how much was she insured? For $5 million, I understand, sir. Uh, also clarified by Philip Franklin, vice president of the International Mercantile Marine Company, uh, which controlled the White Star Line, who said this ship was insured with outside underwriters for five million dollars in round figures it was in pounds about a million pounds the company carried the remainder up to about six hundred thousand between five hundred and six hundred thousand that is our insurance fund carried the remainder they got a payout for five million which means they would have had to eat 2.5 the remaining risk was carried by the company's insurance fund which means they would themselves have to pay out right i mean yeah they definitely did have to pay out a fair amount like they definitely like ate half the value of the ship yeah um we we definitely have to like dive more into like the history of the insurance industry one day because i feel like it's so purposely opaque but in terms of basic principles of the insurance business having something that you have insured uh get completely destroyed is not good for business right no not like unless there's some kind of indirect goal, like, mm-hmm. you know, like there's some sort of reason, like immediately in the immediate sense. No, there's unless you have you some know. other intersecting financial interest. In exactly. Like that like JP thing. Morgan did do that sometimes, like lose money to acquire some other, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like uh, he'd buy a railroad and like drive it at into a the ground. huge loss. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, like, you know, creative destruction and capitalism is, like, definitely a thing. But in this specific case, it doesn't seem like... Like, it's not clear what direct financial benefit he would have derived from having this ship, the $7.5 million ship, just get synced when it was, like, underinsured. Apparently, also, I think Ismay had like an unsigned insurance contract like with him on the on the Titanic that was supposed to cover I forget exactly what it was supposed to cover but uh but he like lost it when the ship sank and it was never signed by the other parties and like that would have insured the company more I think for its losses so the idea that like Jay Bruce Ismay was like in on the Titanic sinking it's like well then why did he not sign that valuable insurance contract like before he left. That's a pretty yeah. big slip up, right? And also just to be on the ship where it sounds like the way he describes surviving is that he was like helping people into lifeboats. And then when they were launching like the very last one, it wasn't quite full. 
and they looked around and there were no more women and children on deck. I don't know if he specifies whether there were, say, like third class men on deck and he was like, get off, you know, and like jumped in. Yeah. But allegedly him and maybe another guy like jumped into the ship. It was just being lowered down. So, you know, if we believe that course of events, like he narrowly survived, you know, the whole disaster. So that's not really not super convinced of that. And even beyond that, like in terms of J.P. Morgan's moves that he was making, you know, around this time, it, it seems to have sort of slowed down his dominance over like international shipping. I mean, he still was incredibly, he remained dominant, but uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, the it, insurers took like a huge hit. Like they, uh, yeah. this is from the, uh, the evening world. Marine underwriters say the loss of the Titanic is the greatest, one of the, is the greatest of Marine disasters. The estimated insurance loss for whole cargo baggage and life insurance is placed all the way from 30 million to 35 million. British underwriters will have to bear the greatest part of the loss, though much reinsurance was placed in Germany, and American underwriters probably will have to pay most of the loss on cargo. One Wall Street authority says the Titanic carried 3 million in diamonds, and wow. And two, yeah, <laughs> and uh, 250,000 in rubber, besides securities and uh, specie. The vessel herself was insured for five thousand, sorry, five million dollars, divided among the large marine insurance companies of the world. She was valued at one th- uh, ten million dollars. William A. Prime, vice president of Wilcock Peck and Hughes, said today, "This loss coming so close in the recent loss of five million in bullion, which went down on the Oceana, means a serious matter for many of the insurance companies and is likely to affect the prosperity of most of them." A representative of the United States Lloyd's at uh, number three South William Street. While doubting whether any large amount of reinsurance in Titanic's hull had been underwritten locally, said, I regard the sinking of Titanic as the greatest loss in the history of marine insurance. Still, the loss need not cripple anyone. Single members of Lloyd's of London who took a risk too large for them to bear may have to suffer, but in the general run, the risks have been very widely distributed. Nearly every large marine underwriter in New York is said to have carried a full line, a full line of insurance, sorry, again, very blurry font, old newspaper, on the Titanic's cargo, the value of which is problematical. It is generally predicted that the rate of marine insurance risks will be materially advanced on account of the Titanic experience. So, I don't know. I mean, maybe this was, like, designed to, like, disrupt and, like, destroy the marine insurance industry. <laughs> that in could Britain, be, like, what the plot was. Uh, or, the Patriots yeah, in control. Too. Yeah, it's yeah, actually Patriots the Patriots that sunk it. Yeah. Uh, getting back at J.P. Morgan, who's a globalist, etc. Uh, taking out all the silk toppers who are, you know, I mean, you can just as easily spin. in any way have profited from, like, the insurance industry crashing? Like, I feel like... I don't know. Uh, probably not. Uh, probably not because they did, like they said, the 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 policies were kind of widely distributed among all these different like insurance holders. So you know, maybe a few of them kind of got cleaned out, and overall, the industry kind of took a bump. But most of them pretty much survived. It certainly you know? wasn't and your I, actually, classic insurance fraud situation where you just <laughs> make money on your like on what you've like you make money on the insurance claim. You know, like you set a fake fire or something and you profit from that. Like that's. Yeah. Know. Unless you want to say that, like, I don't know, like you shifted the wealth to all like the the wealthy widows who like survived and their children and stuff. But even then, there's like ways to do that without like killing all the patriarchs of like great American fortunes like that yeah. seems a little bit much for given the amount that they, you know, got paid out, which I'm sure in some cases was substantial, but not like fortune making if anything it was like fortune fortune sustaining yeah no went to see the 
Bye. 